1994年11月20日女子プロレスの一番熱く長い一日史上最大の決戦ビッグエッグレスリングユニバースドーム頂上対戦ただいまより開催いたします Howdy everyone and welcome to episode 9 of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. I'm George Thompson, David Forrest and Sarah Parkin are joining me as always. How are you doing guys? Howdy. Yeah, alright. I have very little to report but I am sitting here enjoying a McVicky's Caramel Chocolate Digestive which is quite exciting. Yeah, I often think, you know, you know I like biscuits but what if they were chewy? <laughs> That's what I want out of my biscuits. <laughs> See, I've got a good old Brexit biscuit here. I've got a rich cheese. Uh, no fucking about rich teas. <laughs> this, 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 you know what? I've got a lot of time for a rich tea, though. It is simple, it's effective, no airs and graces, terrible for dunking. Absolutely yeah. does not cope on stress. Whatsoever. Rich tea is very much love my kids, ate the EU, simple as biscuits. <laughs> so, um, and we are here for it. <laughs> so we are here to discuss, fresh off the back of not one, but two back-to-back episodes about stuff that wasn't actually pro wrestling at all. You'll be very pleased to know we are talking about actual wrestling. And we, um, in the spirit of uh, getting some big names on after a um, uh, a cast of absolute un- unknowns and relative unknowns in the uh, in that Are point. you saying <laughs> watching Indian children do cartwheels is not real pro wrestling? Because I would argue it is. I would still rather watch it than progress. <laughs> Get that zinger in early. Um, so um, what, what we have selected for you today is uh, one of only uh, surprisingly small amount of uh, three title matches on this 23-match show. It is the WWF Women's Championship on the line as Alundra Blaze takes on Bull Nakano. This is match number 22 on the show. Uh, cue the Sid Vicious uh, impressions. So it is actually the semi-main. We thought we'd bring this to you in in the uh, the spirit of uh, talking about some real star names and uh, talk about the real star names we very much shall. So um, uh, as for why the WWF Women's Championship is being defended on an AJW show, uh, Sarah's going to tell us a little bit about the history of Joshi Promotions working with American companies, such as it is. Sarah. <sighs> Folks. <laughs> 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 this is a great start. I would love to tell you that this is a happy story of interpromotional cooperation and mutual respect and affection and, you know, developing people's careers through, you know, sharing of best practices and shared experiences. There's definitely elements of that in all of this. But mostly, um, mostly you're about to hear a lot of different stories about American wrestling promotions completely failing their own performers. So, Shocking, I know. <laughs> uh, I know. I was as shocked as you when I went back through this. So, 
step back with me, if you will, into the late 1980s in the WWF. I know this was nobody's favourite time in the WWF, but just bear with me. There has kind of always been a crossover between US and Japanese women's wrestling. I mean, if you think about where Japanese women's wrestling came from, so much is owed to those kind of initial tours from Mildred Burke and then eventually from the fabulous Moolah and then Mildred Burke again. Throughout all of that, you've had um, you, you've had tours where American performers have been going over to Japan and have been contributing to the scene over there. You've also had you've had probably to a lesser extent, but you have also had the occasional Japanese talent coming over and sort of working, usually as a, a as a heel in a sort of promotion as a sort of inevitable foreign villain um, get, get used to hearing that by the way <laughs> well yeah quite think about wendy richter as well so wendy richter is someone who never gets her due really when we start talking about the history of the wwf but essentially she could probably have been on a par with hulk hogan if she had been allowed to actually kind of really capitalize on her potential but she was you could see her influence was earth shaking <laughs> Rector, Rector, oh, Wendy Rector. sorry, I've had a long day. <laughs> I appreciated it. I just want to say I enjoyed that a lot. Doesn't laugh though. <laughs> it took me a second. It took me a second to process because I was sat here, sort of getting quietly more and more angry about the thing that I'm about to tell you about the fabulous Moolah. So, so basically, basically, like anger is getting way of the jokes. This is why there were no funny conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> So, Wendy Richter has wrestled in AJW um, kind of before she hits this sort of gold straight, like gold rush in the Fed where she establishes the rock and wrestling connection. And she's got this kind of relationship going with Cindy Lauper in particular. And as a result of various beefs going through the video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun and the like, um, there is a feud that happens on MTV called The Brawl to End It All, in which... <laughs> Wendy Richter, as the champion of Cindy Lauper, defeats uh, defeats the fabulous Moolah, who is the champion of Captain Lou Albano. Yes. And this was the main event on... Not only was this the main event and the only part of the entire show that actually got broadcast on MTV, <laughs> at that point becoming the highest rated segment show that had ever been on MTV. Yeah, ca- ca- it was actually the only match on that entire WWF <laughs> show that was actually televised. The rest went out exclusively on like the local New York stations. So in terms of nationwide media, that was the only bit anybody gave a shit about. So you're at this point where there's actually a lot of real mainstream attention around Wendy Richter. She has that experience of, in previous episodes, I know you talked about the match with um, Wendy Richter, against Jaguar Yukata, it, was, it wasn't the Budokan Hall show. No, was it? it wasn't. It, it was in, I think it was in 1985. This was the match where uh, Wendy Richter uttered the immortal line, check out these sexy legs. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, the, 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 actual, the thing about uh, uh, the, the reason for Cap- Captain Lou Albano's um, involvement of that, in that was that she played Cindy Lauper's dad in the video for uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that uh, Heroes of Wrestling Commissioner extraordinaire, Captain Lou Albano. <laughs> Fun fact about that, about the MTV thing, it was the highest rated thing in MTV until um, the release of Jordy OG's Jordy's and Shagaloof. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is that some kind of is that some kind of really depressing forerunner to some sex and suspicious parents? <laughs> I, I, I think you're underplaying just how much that show absolutely rules. <laughs> yes, it does. 
speaking of young people going on questionable trips abroad, <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to people touring Japan. So Wendy Richter has previously wrestled in AJW, so she has this experience of kind of what's happening in kind of the world, the, the world more broadly. Um, she, uh, unfortunately despite the fact that Richter has all of this mainstream potential. And actually, when you look at she is regularly main eventing house shows throughout this period as well. She is 100%. She is, the, she is one of the top sort of stars now. Um, it doesn't last because Fabulous Moolah doesn't like anybody taking her spot. So, if you will, skip forward a few months to Moolah killing the massive mainstream push of Wendy Richter in what's now known as the original screw job, because as sad as Bret Hart might like to get about things, the world doesn't revolve around him. <laughs> so there is an incident in which Moolah is, Moolah is under a mask and she screws Wendy Richter out of her title. Wendy Richter walks out of WWF and is never seen again. Um, certainly she basically then gets sort of blacklisted from the company until such time as they bring her back for a Hall of Fame induction because that's how Triple H likes to, likes to indicate oh, things that, in our time. That segment's amazing. Cindy Lauper is absolutely trollied. Cindy Lauper's <laughs> trollied a lot though. Yeah, that is true. But like she had uh, definitely, definitely, definitely been at the wine before her appearance on... Uh, Can confirm she was absolutely gizzy, bud. It was, it was incredible. <laughs> She did not care whatsoever. So, but at that point, there was still a little bit of hope for the women's division. So there was definitely a, an expectation that this was going to turn women's wrestling into something a bit bigger. Because, say what you want about the McVans, about the McVans, <laughs> <laughs> McMans. Uh, it often, you know, at least in those early days, they wouldn't leave money on the table just for the sake of it being a woman, you know, but at that point they would actually capitalize on opportunities when they got them. But you still had people like Leilani Kai around, um, people who were probably a little bit more under Moolah's thumb at that point than than Richter was. Um, But they knew what was going on as well. And they were actually quite, they were actually quite smart about it. So Leilani Kai and Judy Martin at this point are pitching a women's tag division um, and they get themselves together as the glamour girls um at one point they so they get jimmy hart as their manager because that means that moolah can't be their manager at one point they actually pitch a feud um that they actually pitch a feud with the jumping bomb angels from ajw um and they they pitch it while moolah's not there literally because that's the only way that they can stop her from sticking her oar in they wait until she's out and then pinch it to and then pitch it to vince specifically Big Lib Dem Coalition energy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Um, so they they so they basically persuaded Vince to bring in the Jumping Bomb Angels from AJW. Now, as to why he went for them, at this point, I think people know that Japan has a really strong women's wrestling scene. I mean, we're in the height of the we're still in the kind of the height of the Crush Gals, really. You know, mm. they haven't been forced to retire yet, so everybody's looking at that and thinking, oh. Well, there's a big there's a big market for women's wrestling over there. They've got some really good people. They, we, you know, we could bring them over. And the Jumping Bomb Angels are not on necessarily the tier of someone like the Crush Girls because they're not also on the front covers of the magazines and the uh, uh, and getting the hit singles. But they are a reliable, dedicated tag team who could realistically be brought in, and you know, you could generally rely on them for quite a good match. So they were the people who came in in the first place, and the idea was that if that feud got over they would look at bringing over more Japanese talent in the future through AJW. It started well, and then the fabulous Moolah didn't want anyone taking her place, and she sabotaged it. 
this is a theme. So the Jumping Bomadoes actually got over really well at Survivor Series as sort of two members of the uh, two members of their mm. Survivor Series team. This then led to they somehow managed to get over despite the fact that sort of American audiences were often really hostile to sort of foreign performers. But they had a lot. I mean, they had a lot to offer. I think anybody who's seen a Jumping Bomb Angels match knows that you know they come with something that's really different to I think a lot of what was being seen certainly in the WWF at the time. You know, just with that that higher speed kind of stronger strikes like all of those kind of things that made them really exciting to watch which were actually quite unusual yeah absolutely they they they, they were a very athletic tag team if you, if you check out their match against um uh, borna carlo who we'll mention later and uh, uh matsumoto at the uh big budokan show in 1985 which we uh, mentioned on the podcast before then that's really good there's also an interesting trivia fact in that up until I don't think it was about 10 years ago or so, but um, there was a point at which only Japanese women had managed to uh, win Survivor Series matches as in had managed to survive them because there was the Jumping Bomb Angels uh, in uh, 1987 at the first Survivor Series. They'd been the uh, survivors of their team and then there was Arjun Kong in 1995. So, because oh, yeah. there was, for ages, they only ever won, they only ever won two uh, women's Survivor Series matches and it was Japanese women who had survived them. So, like... Uh... <laughs> Everybody else was jinxed. It's like yeah, never, never be in a Survivor <laughs> Series match with a Japanese woman. Yeah, and then like 2003, it was just like 11 years of draws <laughs> until uh, Asuka came along and it was like, yeah, we'll, we'll let you win. Yeah, that's a fantastic stat, though. That just Japanese uh, Japanese girls are just amazing at Survivor Series matches. And well, to be fair, they would be because like they do them in Japan quite a lot. Like that was the big thing. And if we're looking at it on a kayfabe perspective. If you look at like New Japan, like in the eighties, it was just all fucking Survivor Series matches all the time. Oh yeah, they're they're great, they're great, they're great as well. Yeah, um, so and, you would expect uh, them to be quite So Jumping Bomb Angels get themselves over at Survivor Series. This then sets the ground for Royal Rumble nineteen eighty eight, where we have a really impressive and chronically overlooked actually um, match, which is two out of three falls and gets 17 minutes. Now, the uh, women's match is getting 17 minutes was pretty much unheard of until about 2016 <laughs> in, in, in WWF. Um, but this is one of the things that irritated me a bit when they reintroduced the women's tag team titles a couple of years ago and made out that it was, you know, the first time ever and that it was super innovative because these people are working their asses off at Royal Rumble 1988 and they don't really get the respect they deserve for it because this match is absolutely great. And they've gone on to be such a prestigious title, the women's tag belts in uh, WWE recently, haven't they? Well, quite. Funnily enough, you were saying, well, two things I going to mention actually just because, or just on the topics you were bringing up, um, I've been listening to the WrestleMe podcast at the moment and um, they're on WrestleMania 32. Uh, that's the one with Undertaker Shane McMahon, isn't it? Yeah. As <laughs> um, if you've forgotten that. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah. not forgotten. Um, no, absolutely not. Um, but they mentioned that the there was a dark match involving Team Total Divas with Alicia Fox, Brie Bella, Eva Marie, Natalia, and Paige, um, accompanied by Nikki Bella and her neck brace, which is weird, and um, Team Bad and Blonde. Oh, God, do you remember they're called Team Bad and Blonde? Oh, fuck that. And it was Emma, Lana, Naomi, Summer Rae and Tamina. And this was the first ever WrestleMania match, first ever women's WrestleMania match to go 10 minutes. What? And 32. WrestleMania 32 was the first time a match went 10 minutes. Now, now, now far be it for me to say they shouldn't have given that match as much as 10 minutes, but... <laughs> well, to be fair, you do have some 
I don't remember that match very well, but there are people in it who could have carried it if they'd chosen to book the match appropriately. Yes, but... I just assume that they didn't. <laughs> yes, but... <laughs> what you actually need to do there is just literally have Natalia, Paige and Naomi in different sort of... And, and probably Emma as well, actually, because she had those really good matches with Paige. Literally, just put them in the ring and just give them 10 so, minutes. They'll be fine. So do you mean to say that WrestleMania match when they literally put 14 women in it also did not go 10 minutes? Oh, no, it was in nine minutes, yeah. Fucking was, hell. Uh, yeah, but as well as that, this that was also the show that they mentioned, that Lita unveiled the first ever WWE Women's Championship. Yeah, you got that triple threat. The triple threat, which was Charlotte, Sasha, and Becky, which was which is actually a really, really good match. So, what is that match about once every three months? Yes, and uh, but they 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 piped up as the first ever WWE Women's Championship. It's been Divas Championship for no, it's not. I remember the WWE Women's Championship. It's, it's not actually the Women's Championship. It's not actually like ancient history. I think they got rid of that belt in like 2010. Yeah, it was. It's like 2010 because Lay Cool. Had, I remember Lay Cool had a um had the half the Divas title. Yeah, and then they gave someone else the women's title at the same time as well, and yeah. yeah, it was it was really not ancient history, but um, yeah, they were just oh first ever WWE women's title because it was the WWF one before and like Look, collective <laughs> collective and selective amnesia are both very common in WWF, aren't they? Yeah, this was yeah. So this Royal Rumble match that was Jumping Bomb Angels versus the Glamour Girls. This match gets over huge, and to be honest, it is still one of the it's still one of the better sort of pre twenty sixteen women's matches mm. that you'll see in 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 federation history. It's very very good. Um, that went so well that they were looking at building up to this being the WrestleMania match because that had been the original plan: bring them in at Survivor Series, have the match at the have the match at the Rumble. If all of this keeps going well, keep building it, and then have your big money match at WrestleMania. As part of the preparation for this, um, they all got sent on the Japan tour. So they went on the house show tour and Moolah went with them. So no one can get hold of Pat Patterson because of time differences and the fact that Pat Patterson was probably really busy doing something else. What I don't know, whatever he did. He seems he seems like a busy bloke. Um Moolah made the decision whilst producing the match that they were going to call an audible and that the Jumping Bomb Angels were going to drop the belts to the Glamour Girls and that was not the plan. The plan was that they were going to keep them until WrestleMania and then the Glamour Girls would bring them back. No one could get hold of Pat Patterson to overrule her so the Jumping Bomb Angels said, right, well, okay, we're going to have to go with it. They did this and then everyone comes home Vince finds out what what's happened, and he's mad at the Glamour Girls because apparently they went into business for themselves. <laughs> for fuck's sake! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moolah does not give a shit. She doesn't take responsibility for this or anything like this. So at that point, the Mania match is off as punishment. So you know the the division basically gets nixed on the back of this. So there was a time and they give Moolah a battle royal to re- reward her. <laughs> what a cunt! Right. So this is. So this is sort of spring 1988, um, and we've had the first attempt at potentially a working agreement between the WWF and AJW, and the idea being that this would bring in additional talent, fresh matchups, help them bolster a division to kind of get a division back on its feet and keep things keep things interesting there. Um, it gets nixed. It kind of ends up on the shelf. But around that time, um, going back into AJW, um, a young American last by the name of Deborah Ann Michelli is starting to it is starting to work there. So she's getting a huge amount of experience there. You might know her because at this point she was going under the name Medusa, which is just in case anyone was 
missing any of the symbolism here. She wears a lot of red, white and blue and Medusa is shortened from made in USA. That's what she's there for. We came to know her later on as Alondra Blaze, which is the name in which she's going to be in our, our match for today. She had actually started training in 1984 and she'd done quite a lot of work before she got a six-week tour in AJW in 1989. So there aren't really that many opportunities in the big leagues for women in terms of way, in terms of women's wrestling in America. She does a six-week tour there, gets herself over, in which um, she obviously goes down really well. She becomes the first foreign woman to sign a full-time deal with AJW so she signs that she works there for three years she got pushed hard in 1989 as well because I was I was looking it up like um, she uh, won their tag league in 1989 with her partner Mitsuko Nishiwaki and uh, got to the final of the uh, Japan Grand Prix losing to Nishiwaki so like uh, one tournament win and one tournament runner-up in 1989 Uh, Nishiwaki incidentally is someone I'd be fascinated to learn more about because she's not She's not someone you ever hear mentioned, but uh, she was uh, probably because her career wasn't very long. She debuted in 1987, I think, and uh, retired in 1990. But in 1989, she won the Japan Grand Prix. And after beating, you know, before beating Medusa in the final, she went through uh, the following wrestlers, Bison Kimura, Toshio Yamada and Bull Nakano. So that is like a hell of a run to the final. Um, people don't people don't talk about her now, but she was uh, clearly a very big deal in AJW, as was Medusa in 1989. So it's not as... no week two clubs at home in this cup run. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's not just that she uh, got a contract; she was pushed hard in 1989. Although speaking of League Two, um, there is actually a moment when so the IWA title, which was doing the rounds in AJW at the time, was a kind of a secondary, secondary even tertiary belt. Um, but Chigas and Agaya was holding it at the time, and um, Medusa won it from her. She dropped it to her the next night, so she only <laughs> had that title for a day. But the glittering then, rain in the history books <laughs> forever immortalised in the annals of time. Yeah. Well, it, it's not even her shortest title reign, bearing in mind that last year she actually became very briefly the 24-7 champion on an episode of Raw. <laughs> oh, fuck, I've forgotten about yeah, that. So a glittering rain in the annals of time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all right. It means she's in the record books forever now. It's it. It's there. Um, so... But that gives you an idea of how highly they were thinking of her, actually, for someone who'd just gone over there for a six-week tour. You know, they did let her win a match against someone who was, you know... Chigasa, having not retired yet, is still a really big deal at at this stage. So even just having that sort of back and forth, that is an achievement. Um, But her contract is up sort of three years later. She comes back back into um, the US. She goes to WCW for a while, and um, there is an attempt then. Basically, she suggests to WCW that they try and do what WWF was doing a couple of years previously. So this is, it's starting to create a new women's division in 1991, including, to be honest, most of the people who by that point had given up on WWF. So she ends up wrestling people like Leilani Kai, Judy Martin, um, and at least one of the Jumping Bomb Angels turned up there as well. I'm not sure whether they were both tagging at this point, but certainly Yamazaki was um, turned up in WCW. Yeah, Yamazaki was. Uh, they they actually had a women's match on uh, on pay per view at a show called Wrestle War, um, featuring uh, Itsuki Yamazaki was on one team, and on the other side was uh, Miss A, which was a uh, alter ego of Dynamite Kansai, who we will uh, mention in later episodes. So they clearly at least. They brought in some good people. It's one of these sort of, uh, I think, kind of abortive starts at a uh, at a women's yeah. uh, women's division. And it, it really is abortive because by the end of that year, virtually all of those women had left. Um, so 
1991, you have a brief flowering. Um, Medusa actually got kept on as a valet. So she was in the Dangerous Alliance in WCW. She was the valet for Rick Rude for a while. I, I, I can't read your handwriting clearly because I thought that said the Red Rooster. <laughs> I was like, that would be a very, very different act. I mean, I... I mean, there's a market for it. I'm sure there is. Mainly me. Let's <laughs> <laughs> be honest. It's all right. We're, we're going to get to Horny David later on. Uh, because we've, uh, because I, I'm not sure about this one, but I was um, listening to episode four this weekend, which gives you an idea of the lag on when we film <laughs> on when we record these things. But um, it went that over the courses of episode three and episode four, I'd listened to David getting horny over Chigasunagaya. Uh, not Chigasunagaya, um uh, Bison Kimura, Bison, come on, come on Bison, now. Bison Kimura, and then um, Suzuki Manami. I like, see, I'd completely yes. forgotten about that. Yeah, um, so... it's hard to keep track of this. <laughs> I know, like, it's hard to hear from all the slabber on my microphone as I'm drooling. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're doing a very good job of speaking through the drool. I want to support that. <laughs> so, so definitely not, not nothing to do with the Red Rooster. And so you've got the Dangerous Alliance, and she's Rick Rude's valet for a while. Um, what through by hook or by crook, she finds herself in WWF in 1993 because by this point Vince is starting to reinstate the women's title. The women's title had been vacant since 1990. They'd just given up on it basically. Um, so thus uh, there is a recurring theme emerging throughout Alundra Blaze's career of her being brought into companies so that they can build women's divisions around her, which then fail. So. This house, so around 1993, she wins the title tournament, and then she's I think she pins Heidi Lee Morgan in the final actually. And she asks Vince if he will bring in some new opponents for her number one, to make the division more interesting, to give her more to do as a performer. And at this point, she must just have been like, she must have been thinking that she wanted this to be a division that worked. Like, she's seen it sort of crumble underneath her before, and now she's clearly seeing that there's got to be a benefit and there's got to be something long-term that she can do with it. So she says, she says, bring me more opponents. Thus begins the feud with Bull Nakana. So in terms of whether there was ever anything contractual between the companies, I don't really know. I mean, this is this is wrestling. It could have quite easily just been a handshake deal, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, WWF had uh, entered into formal working agreements with Pro Feds before. I'm thinking in particular of New Japan. They did a lot of work together in the 80s, which included uh, WWF sanctioning titles, such as the uh, WWF Junior Heavyweight title, which Tatsumi Fujinami had for a long time, or the WWF World Martial Arts title, which I know he had for even longer, 17 years, if I recall. Um, New Japan executive Hisashi Shinma was at one point the uh, kayfabe uh, president of the WWF and uh, uh, Hulk Hogan and Bob Backlund became big deals in uh, New Japan and uh, they did a little bit with uh, All Japan in the early 90s then entered into an agreement with uh, Genichiro Temu's SWS promotion which is which accounts for that match in which uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Kamala um, hit Japan which we discussed on an earlier episode of the uh, Puro Puri podcast uh, so J Crown as well. Um, oh I mean, yes, like of the, course. The, the really famous Ultimo Dragon picture. I mean, like the the whole the whole thing with the J Crown. The reason it was disbanded was that one of the titles was the WWF light heavyweight title, and they showed they the obviously like they they must have sent a fax or something to WWF going yeah yeah we're, we're gonna make this title change, and they're not actually fine don't care. And then like suddenly Ultimo Dragon turned up in Starcade with the WWF light heavyweight title and just like hey and then he lost the title and they were like. 
It was a fucking title change of one of her belts on a WCW pay-per-view. What the hell is going on? And they immediately asked the belt back and had to disband the J-Crown because of it. Fantastic. Like it's, uh, and there was also the stuff that uh, when WWF uh, built their light heavyweight division in 1997, they brought in a load of guys from Michinoku Pro, and that's how The Undertaker ended up wrestling Hakushi on a Michinoku Pro show which is all very good. So, like, there's been various degrees of formalised working agreements, but uh, at this time, uh, Bruno Carno was really, certainly in uh, 1994, um, she was the person they were bringing in uh, from AJW, and it wasn't... Uh, and really, she wasn't being used much by then, uh, by AJW at that point anyway. Yeah, so Bruno Carno gets brought in um, fairly early on in 1994, so there's actually... The SummerSlam 1994 match, which people have heard so much about and which people talk about so often, because it was seen as, for, for decades basically, it was seen as sort of the gold standard for what women's wrestling yeah. in, in the Fed could achieve. Um, we'll probably talk about this later on. I'm not sure it's the best match they had that year in the Fed, to be honest, but that's the one that kind of gets, that's the one that kind of gets fetted quite a lot. Um it doesn't go very long, but it does. It sets it sets the tone. It sets the standard for what that division could have then gone on to be. Um, so there's a there's a match that they have on Raw. Bull Nakano debuts as an associate of Luna Vachon, who manages her. Everybody always gets extra points with me if they bring Luna Vachon with them. It just makes everything better. They're um, such a natural pairing as well. You could see yeah. them being friends in real life, couldn't you? You totally could. They've got the same aesthetic. You really do, but they're 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 crucially they're not like tag team partners that have the same clothes or anything like that. They just no. they they just get each other and they are on the same wavelength definitely. Bar. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But it's like a it's like a slightly grimy biker bar where they are the coolest people in the room. Yeah. They never arrange to meet, but they always meet. Yeah, it's actually crazy um, how many times they wrestled each other in WF. This was uh, the well, probably the only women's feud they were running at the mm. time. Basically, from August 94 through March 95, this was the women's match on WF Power Show, including they did a UK tour featuring dates in London, Birmingham, Hull and Aberdeen. So I can <laughs> I can now conclusively prove that Borna Carno has been to Scotland. And Bona Carno's been to Hull, which is frankly baffling <laughs> to me. Do you know where else she's been? Because I looked this up as well to see where else she's been. Do you know where else she's been? Where? Guam. They had a show in Guam. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bill Nakano and Roger Blaze in Guam. I was like, what the hell? Like, that, oh, that... That's, an, that's an army base though, isn't it? It must be. That, yeah. that must have been an, an army base show. Mm. It's just like, yeah, I was wondering this, but yeah, because it was just like a normal house show. I was like, what the hell? Like, yeah, it's clearly an army base, but I was like, are we get, is there like a, a fan cam of them in American Samoa tearing down Pago Pago <laughs> uh, in a 25-minute barn burner? That's what I want to see. The Marianas Islands have never seen anything like this. Yeah, so the SummerSlam 1994 match is actually their, their second match because they debut... Um, Nakano debuts on Raw as an associate of Luna Vachon. She ends up in a match with Alundra Blaze because for some reason you give away your big money match to start off with. But no, we're doing a double count out. That doesn't sound like the WWF. I know, right? Yeah, so they, so there's a bit of a fuck finish, but it becomes really clear that Bull Nakano is here for Blaze and, and she is she, she's here to kick ass and take names. Side point, by the way, Alundra Blaze. 
you know how NXT has all of these really weird names for people because they probably all had trademarks and can make money off of the names that they had on the indies? How do you discredit the name of Mars Wang? <laughs> well, let's have a word about Ridge Holland, shall we? That's the one. That's one oh, fucking with. hell. Oh, you know, so so many people, like Cameron, Cameron Grimes. Cameron Grimes. Cameron Grimes. <laughs> How do you, like, I, I love Crinkle Netherlands. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, Crinkle Netherlands is in many ways the Alondra Blaze of, of today. Because <laughs> what is Crinkle Netherlands doing in the impact? So You've got to be kidding me. Alundra Blaze took that name in WWF because she had trademarked the name Medusa and Vince McMahon refused to pay her for the use of the name that she'd already built up this massive sort of cachet with when she'd been working around the world. So Somewhere Alundra... a solicitor in Greece and uh, the Acropolis is filing a lawsuit <laughs> as we speak. I represent the estate of Perseus. And... <laughs> oh, so, so, Sean of... Virtually all of the international experience and all of the reputation that had kind of originally got her into the company, Alundra Blaze, as she is so called, um, is at the centre of this kind of nascent division where Bull Nakano comes in and they start having this feud. The feud finds itself at Big Egg, and I think there's probably quite a few reasons for this. Number one being that, you know, AJW was never not going to take Bull Nakano back to their biggest to, to their biggest show um they needed her i think that you know it would have been incomplete without her in a few in a, in a lot of ways i assume that we're going to talk a little bit more about about bull Meccano in depth later on because that's my favorite thing to do in the world well we may as well we may as well do it now considering we're uh, we're about to do the match so we may as well do a bit of bull Meccano background mm. uh, before that well then gentlemen do you have a moment to talk about our lord and savior bull Meccano? <laughs> you've been waiting so long to do this i really really have guys good god i love bull nakana um let's let, let's just talk a little bit about why she is in this position and why she would have been so uh, why she would have been so important for ajw to have her back at this massive show big egg so she debuted at the age of 15 and became the junior champion in 1984 at the age of 16 um she held that belt for three years and having belts for a long time is something that comes naturally to Bull Nakana. Um, during this time when she is the junior champion, she is tagging with her mentor, Matsumoto. She's brought it right in and becomes kind of her second in the Atrocious Alliance, which is probably the best tag team <laughs> name in the history of tag team names. Um, she becomes a tag champion in August 1986. So she has been wrestling for about a year and a half and she is winning, ta- she is winning tag team tournaments. She actually went to the Fed then. So in 1986, there had been a brief attempt at kind of an an exhibition type of match thing. Um, So she and Dump wrestled Velvet McIntyre and Dawn Marie Johnston. So they they, they actually had a tag match all the way back as early as 1986. It doesn't really seem to have gone anywhere, but Bull Nakano had kind of started with that international experience quite early. And then that kind of becomes one of her calling cards after a while. So Dump Matsumoto retires, um, and I mean, Bull's just a tag champion now, so she just keeps winning them with different partners. So in 1987, she wins the tag titles with Condor Saito, incredible name, underutilised and underrepresented. In 1988, she wins them with Grizzly Iwamoto. That's my favourite of mine. It's a great name, such a good name. And uh, imagine Grizzly Iwamoto and Bison Kimura fighting to the death. (laughs) 
Imagine well, this is it. Their, their girl gang at the time was Dump Matsumoto, Aja Kong, Bill Nakano, Bison Kimura, and Grizzly Iwamoto, and I've never wanted to be part of a girl gang as much. <laughs> it, is, it is a truly wonderful thing, isn't it? There's some it? great photos of them in all their sort of punk aesthetic gear. They are terrifying. It's an incredibly I good mean, look. And in some ways, I actually think that it improves after Dump Matsumoto retires. Number one, because it creates a bit more space for them, but number two, because Dump Matsumoto is the one who always comes out with all the swastikas. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, slightly um, problematic. Actually, yeah, <laughs> I actually think this whole stable gets less problematic as it goes along. And, you know, Bulnakana inhabits her natural place at the centre of everything. So she wins the she wins the Japan Grand Prix as a singles competitor. She wins the All Pacific Championship in 1989, which is one of the sort of the mid-level belts in the company. She actually dropped that later on to Norio Tateno of the Jumping Bomb Angels. So these people are kind of all working together sort of in the same environment, crossing paths all the time. Um, there's a really obvious trajectory here where she's kind of been... It was a bit of a rocket push at the start, and since she's been there, they've said, okay, well, she's really early stage, but she's got all the potential. We're going to keep going with her. We're going to keep carrying her, and we're going to keep pushing her. In January 1990, um, after, we may have mentioned this earlier, but Lioness Asuka retired at the end of 1989 because she got to 26, and then the crush girls were gone, and then there was nobody to carry the business as their top star. January 1990, the vacant red belt is won by Paul Nakano. She will not drop this title belt until November 1992. <laughs> it, it, it's, the, it's the longest individual reign in the history of the Red Belt, aside from Mildred Burke having had it for like 17 years at the start. And let's face it, that was probably a work. I mean, Sarah, I don't know if you, if, uh, you know this, but uh, wrestling is a work. I mean, you're shocking me. I will I, I, I've, I've seen a feature for winning the tournament in Rio. I have no <laughs> doubt as to whether or not this is a legitimate title win. Oh, it's it's incredible. Look, this this title reign, Bull Nakano is, I mean, she's one of the greatest champions who's who's ever who, who's ever lived. I would say. I mean, at some point, I'm going to to stop and let uh, and let you guys talk about her, but I cannot talk enough about how great this title reign is because she eventually she runs through everybody, but she runs through them in ways that actually. People do get elevated in defeat. People do come out of it looking like hard bastards. You know, she does come out and, and, you know, people come out of it looking like worthy contenders for rematches and things like that as well. She is never less than a dominant champion, but people can push her to the limit. Um, Eventually, she will drop that title in November 1992 to Aja Kong, who will then have the belt, you know, for the rest of time. Yeah, that that was was about 850 days, that reign. So, like, another pretty monster one after Bull had it. Yeah, I mean, Ajakong is the champion right now at Big Egg as we talk talk about it. So, of course, nothing says, I respect you for taking my title, like, let's become a regular tag team, which is something that they then continue to do. It's fucking terrifying. I absolutely love it. They're so terrifying. It's great. There's an excellent tag match from, I think, 93, where they're tagging against Akira Hokuto and Shinobu Kandori. It's about 35 minutes long, and the story of the match is both tag teams absolutely despise, like, the people they're tagging with. Like, just Arjun and Bull are just scrapping at various points, and, like, it's... But it's actually done well, and, like, WWE likes doing the can the, this tag team coexist storyline approximately four times a year. Like, this is an actually good version of that. Mm, it really is. So, I mean, throughout this period, 
they never stop using Paul McCartney, but what do you do when you are, you know, you're the Alexander the Great who's run out of worlds to conquer? Like, there isn't really anything else they can do with her. So people love her. They keep bringing her on. And she she wins far more often than she loses. You know, it's a very, it's still a very big deal to pin Paul McCartney. But she predominantly works a lot of tag matches, even six women tags. You know, a singles match for her is, is a bit rarer at this point. They've kind of, they've run out of, meaningful things to do with her they keep finding things to do but there isn't really anything overly exciting but one of the other things that they started doing towards the end of her reign was basically just letting her go on excursion so in june 1992 she had gone to mexico and become the first women's champion in cmll which is the oldest continuously running wrestling promotion in the world isn't it? yeah and this was quite a big deal because it was actually only the previous year to that that uh, cmll had seen fit to create its own title belt after a, a mere 58 years of existence <laughs> is cmll actually a golf club is that what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah the wrestling's actually a front it's just a golf loving mafia behind it I, I i for one do not believe that wrestling would ever be a front for organized crime i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> um but she so she doesn't drop that belt until March 1993. So there's a point where she's going backwards and forwards because she's defending her title and eventually losing her title in, in Japan and then going out to Mexico and having matches there. During that time, by the way, um, it seems like WWF is not the only company that's realised there's there's mileage in working directly with AJW because that Mexican title was defended against Akira Hokuto and Yumiko Hata, among others. So there were, so you know, there were people saying, "Okay, have you got, a, have you got a mate that you can bring in for this sort of, for, for this, you know, this sort of defense?" Can find it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's on YouTube. But that, I, I mean, pinning Kingston the guy even in 1993, like after her the peak of her career, really, that's mm-hmm. still a gigantic deal. It's a gigantic deal to pin Kingston the guy now. In fairness. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but I think that was, I mean, I think that's really interesting because Dream Slam is obviously a match where they really wanted to stack the card because that's your two kind of, two of your best known champions of the past 10 years, albeit both of them kind of more at exhibition match level now. Hmm. You know, they're, they're bringing them in. and But it's a sign of the fact that even after she dropped the title, that was how strong Bull Meccano was considered. Oh, yeah. So it was a very big deal for her to be going over to other promotions and potentially losing matches. Yeah. Um... Uh, and that's part of the political context of this ma- of, of the matches that you see on Raw and at SummerSlam and then through, through Big Egg and the matches that came afterwards. Yeah, so I believe that does take us up to Big Egg. So let us begin talking about the match. So it is uh, the semi-main of the show, Lunger Blaze versus Bornacano, WWF Women's Championship on the line. Uh, so we, obviously we get the promos beforehand. Um, Alundra Blaze, uh, I think she was trying to say even they're on an even plateau. Uh, she accidentally says evil plateau, which sounds a bit like a Spyro the Dragon level. Um, and uh, so basically they do the promos and then uh, we'll just skip over those because I want to talk about the entrances. Because, yes. I mean, fucking hell. Firstly, Bornacano's theme is one of the few on this show that wasn't dubbed with this like jazzy funk music. And I'm very thankful for this because Bornacano's theme is really really good. So good it fits her character it, it's certainly much less incongruous than for example akira hokuto's theme or or something like that it's like a real sort of slow tempo doom laden song with like these evil sounding synths on it like you can see it like her sort of uh trudging to the ring um she she doesn't have the big long coat like she would in the in the fed she's coming out fairly unadorned but then she starts doing nunchuck tricks at the top of the big ramp which i feel is a gigantic power move like, 
I, I have a theory that Bill Nicano looks imperious at putting the bins out. Like, every time I see her, like, it doesn't matter what she's wearing, whether she's wearing a big coat or a Megadeth t-shirt or whatever, she just looks like she'll fuck you up. <laughs> and she, yeah, she just looks like an absolute empress. And yeah, I, I love I loved her outfit here. I do, I, 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 do, I do think that the you're right about the theme music matching because, again, she spent a lot of her early years sort of dressing as that punk and wearing Megadeth t-shirts and things like that. So you would expect, you that is a, a thing that you could realistically expect her to listen to in real life based on her character outside of wrestling she would listen to that song as a song absolutely and i think despite despite what we're saying about all of her presence and her charisma one of the things i like about this match and about bull nakana throughout this whole show is that she looks like she's having the time of her life so we've talked about this when we looked at when we looked back at the opening ceremony as well and the fact that you know happy smiling waving bull nakana it's weird will never not be a bit weird <laughs> uh, but she's been like that all the way through and she comes out for this match and at this point she knows everybody loves her. She knows that she's on top of the world. She knows that she's just here to give a bit of a victory lap and, you know, for everybody to talk about how much they love Bull Nakano being there. So she comes out. She's smiling. She's happy. She's relaxed. That whole nunchuck moves bit at the top of the ramp, that kind of felt to me almost like this is... I really don't want to ruin this for anyone once you put this image in your eyes, but... You know how Bruce Forsyth would come out and do, little, <laughs> and do like a few little quick steps at the top of the ramp or something, just to be like, "Oh, you know what I'm here for, don't you? Yeah. This is who I am." <laughs> and everybody just goes, "Oh, don't we love him?" I feel like that's what Bull Nakano's doing here. She's coming out and being like, "Guys, you fucking love me, don't you?" And everyone's like, "Yes, yes, we do." Bull Nakano's playing your twenty-three match cards, right? <laughs> well, I mean. I was going to say, obviously, under the championship advantage on the WWF Women's Championship, you can't win the title via DQ. Not in this game. <laughs> the, uh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> the voice of a man who watches a lot of Challenge TV. Um, but uh, I, I think, actually, Bull Nakano, as impressive as her entrance is, uh, somewhat gets outdone in this regard by Alundra Blaze because she comes out with a full-on fucking biker gang. Like, oh, we will get to motorbikes later. We will, we get, will to get to motorbikes we under will. somewhat less salubrious circumstances. But for the moment, like, uh, Alundra Blaze is into her bikes and uh, motorsports in general. Uh, it's quite funny when you consider uh, Alundra Blaze, after her wrestling career ended, uh, became a uh, professional monster truck driver and Bull Nakano got into professional golf. And if you looked at them and I told you to guess which of them went on to do those things, you would probably have guessed it the other way around. But um, a little place, if I should say, very much into motorcycles. She's got, I think, like eight dudes on bikes. They all come out one by one. It's like a million Undertaker entrances. Yeah, but she comes out with a gigantic... She has to come out riding riding behind um, on her bike because she has a freaking huge United States flag I, that she's got to wave around as she goes through the dirt. I think like that's such a big flag, even like the, the heads of the Republican Party would go, actually that's a bit much. Do you want to turn it down a bit? Oh, it's 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 so it's so great. Like I'm 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 a sucker, like not not in any other circumstances, but like rampant American jingoism in wrestling. Think like Don Fry's stars and stripes shorts. Like uh, st- stuff like that. I, I would actually just like to throw a question out here to David in terms of knowing how much an opening ceremony and a standard and things mean to him. Did this make you more or less happy than the people coming out with full-on standards in the opening ceremony? 
Well, I mean, it's it, they are all imperialist pig dogs, so <laughs> <laughs> we, we do have to remember. I, I went into this and I was like, is Bill the heel here? I, I, I don't think, she's certainly not the heel in my heart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I do like the standards, but I, I do love a, I do love a wee cheeky flag. Um, uh, we, we needed some anthems, but that was about it. Yeah, we we like it, it's uh, but yeah, it's it's quite funny as uh, as we mentioned episode two, Alunga Blaze coming out being the only person uh, carrying her standard. Like the you you've got basically the Kiribati Olympic team, just like just <laughs> you and one of the last. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, so big big entrances for uh, this is this this match occupies kind of an interesting um, uh, spot on the card. Because it's just in terms of where it's positioned, it's between the semi-finals and the final of the VTOP tournament, which is like the big centerpiece of the show, and uh, it it only gets about nine minutes. And there is a sense in which it's kind of a cool-down match, but the entrances certainly don't uh, certainly don't reflect that. Um, and the other thing that I found quite interesting about this match, um, and the kind of um, so bef- before this, when we were um, watching the match last night, Sarah and I watched. Um, uh, all five of the uh, Alundra Blaze Borna Carlo matches that made tape in America. And uh, they pretty much all start with Borna Carlo uh, getting Alundra Blaze buying the hair and fucking her across the ring. Like in every circumstance. Would everyone like to know something that will really upset them about that? Go on. On the WWE website, Borna Carlo's Hall of Fame profile. She's specific- not in the Hall of Fame, is she? Um, no, alumni no, profile. On the alumni profile. Alum- I was going yeah. to. Your your, your one thing it. is Bornacano should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> if they've done it without. You've been living a lie for the last five years. It's not my one thing. Okay. <laughs> so, well, now that you don't go on a bus and you work from home, <laughs> it's not your, <laughs> your Twitter account. Fair point, actually. I have no, I have nothing anymore. If they ever put Bornacano in the Hall of Fame, I think I'm fucked because I have no content left at this point. Um. But yeah, so it's um, her, her alumni profile on the website, that is, um, specifically talks about her being scary and intimidating and how she loved to grab Alundra Blaze by the hair and throw her across the ring in a tribute to the fabulous Moolah. Oh, oh no. God. But unlike the fabulous Moolah, Bull actually had some other moves. And unlike the fabulous Moolah, Bull Meccano was known for not being a shithouse behind the scenes, and I think that's worth celebrating. Yes, just Google the fabulous Moolah if you don't know what we're talking about, because politicking backstage is pretty much the least of her crimes. In in a way, in terms of the hair pulling, can we now uh, cast a lineage between Bill Meccano and the Cat Terry Cat fight from WrestleMania (laughs) 2000s? I absolutely forbid that we do. Um, (laughs) I mean, the interesting thing about this match for me is that um, it was worked in a completely different style to the matches that they had in America, essentially in two main ways. Firstly, was uh, it was a bit less sprinty, certainly at the start. It was quite cagey in the uh, first 30 seconds, a lot of like, essentially what I would describe as AJW house style, a lot of like Irish whips and big fuck off uh, clotheslines. They do admittedly do the hair, the hair pull spot after that, but they don't go straight into it. And the other thing was like during this match, I felt that, uh, and probably because she is the main star in this match, whereas Alundra Blaze was in America, Bull actually has much more of the match than uh, she did whenever they wrestled in the US. Like that, like because like I mean, there is a 
uh, you know, we, we've we've mentioned this in other episodes of the main podcast, if not here, but like the Bulgakano was one of the the biggest wrestlers on the AJW roster, and there's a substantial size difference. And yet, the the way they worked the matches in the WWF. Um, didn't really play up to it as, as much as they could. Like, Alundra Blaze got in a decent amount of offence in those matches, uh, more more so than she did in this one. Yeah. I would say, think about what the long-term aims are in both, in both as well, because Bull Nakano was predominantly, she was being brought in as someone to make Alundra Blaze look good. That was the purpose of that. So... And if you listen to the commentary, and I strongly advise that, you know, where possible, you should watch any women's matches from this period of WWF with the sound off. Um, you do, <laughs> oh, God. I, I did the same as you. I watched about six, six matches. I watched, there was a really good tag match with them and what is her name? Heidi Lee Morgan, was it? Heidi uh... Lee Morgan, yeah. yeah. I watched that as well, um, and it was great. And the commentary is um <laughs> revolting I'll be honest. Yeah. I mean, in, in all honesty. Like I, I apart from Randy Savage who quite clearly fancies the fuck out of Bill Nagano. Co- correct and, take, yeah. by the way. Randy, <laughs> yes, yeah, but, Randy Savage doesn't doesn't pretend at any point. I think where well, I, I really enjoy Randy Savage on commentary as a rule. I, yeah. I can't listen to I was saying this last night, I can't listen to Randy Savage anymore um without thinking of his appearance on the big breakfast that I uh, recently watched. <laughs> Famously flirting with Lily Savage. It's so it's so fucking good. Like Google it if you guys. She wouldn't even have to depot it. (laughs) It's like twenty minutes of just the Macho Man interacting with various minor UK celebrities of the nineties, and Hulk Hogan there just kind of being a third wheel, just cementing the fact that Savage is better than Hogan, which I think we all knew. But it's nice of the Big Breakfast to confirm that. I I I would like to take this opportunity just to say as well, just while just while we're here that. The, the general theme of Vince McMahon and... Well, just generally Vince McMahon. Oh, and Jerry Lawler as well. Uh, the general theme of their commentary is, oh, look at Bill Nakano. She's not very attractive, isn't she? Yeah. No, no, she is. She absolutely yeah, is. Say, this is the beautiful like, woman you know, like, in professional Joshi wrestling fans, history. Yeah, Joshi fans tend to, like, you know, get very heated about uh, certain things like, uh, you know, uh, our Donna Del Mondo overpushed in, in stardom and uh, things like that and the booking of various promotions. But, like, very seen by that point. Yes, yes, indeed. But, like, <laughs> the one thing every single Joshi fan agrees on is Border Carter was hot as fuck. <laughs> I mean, like, and I was sitting there and I, they were talking about this, and it was, it was as if they were, like, going. Like, I don't know, they were like spouting some mad insane conspiracy theory. Like they couldn't quite believe that it was grounded in any sort of reality. They could have been talking about fucking 5G. Or, like, <laughs> or how masks don't prevent the coronavirus or something. And like, I'd have been like, yeah, it's, it's more reasonable than what they're actually fucking saying. Because I just, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Like, I understand that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but clearly this beholder's get fucking uh, uh, cataract or something like that. It's 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 pretty much like Bornicano is a uh, a large woman and is dressed in a non conventional manner and therefore this is bad and no and one could does, ever yeah. possibly and like does it. Does not look like a Caucasian American woman. Yes, exactly. Alundra Blaze, however, very much does. So you can see why the commentary was how it was at that time. Yeah, I mean, actually, one thing that's interesting when you watch them. So the the two matches, the two singles matches that are on the that are on the network before we get to Big Egg. So there is the there's the one where um, Bull Nakano debuts on Raw, and then there's the SummerSlam '94 match. 
I made a few notes when I was watching them about what they were uh, about the um, about the descriptions of them. Oh yes, please. Oh, no. What's, really, oh, no. well, what's really interesting actually is that sort of Savage and it's it's Lawler sadly on commentary at night at, at, at SummerSlam. Yeah, what's well, so They go from they go from during the entrances they shit on Bolnacano's appearance, but then as soon as the match starts, they immediately switch to being on her side because they're the heel commentators. And well, she might not look pretty, but she's a fantastic wrestler and she's here to destroy well, Alundra Blaze. Well, you... It's really interesting the way that they switch because so there is a conversation between. Um, oh, so Lola does refer to Bolnacano as she's getting in the ring as um, he mocks her hair and then says, I'd call her a woman of size. Meanwhile, Vince is describing Alundra Blaze as what an athlete, and Lola replies, what a face. Um, it's very Aryan, isn't it? It's very Aryan. Um, there's a lot of what, what makes this match interesting, and I, I often think, am I doing myself a favour by not learning Japanese so that I'm spared whatever kind of Japanese it can't be as bad as that, people. surely. But it can't be, it, it, Do you not remember Maria and New Japan? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, but it, it's so interesting to see how those things are, are, are compared because then you get into, you come back to, to Big Egg and the whole point of when they're in America, these matches are there to be exhibitions that make a Lundra Blaze look good and Bull Nakana only looks domineering and intimidating insofar as that then enables a lunch place to just look all the better we come over to Japan and it's actually the Bull Nakano show and the Lundra Blades has to work that style of match. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, something I find fascinating in, uh, in wrestling is watching uh, the matches that the same opponents will have, not just in different promotions, but in uh, different environments and uh, with you know, different expectations. So they work the match um, uh, differently. This isn't to say that this is, uh, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say this is, significantly better or worse than the SummerSlam match. It's not like the kind of, uh, the one I always think of is in, uh, I want to say this was 1992, uh, Rick Rude and Masahiro Chono. Uh, they had a match in New Japan that, uh, uh, obviously we're not taking Melk's uh, uh, ratings as gospel, but that one got four and a half stars. And then a few months later, they had a WCW one that got minus three. And it's apparently just, I've not seen the match, but it's like just half an hour of pure dog shit. And um, it's just, it's amazing to think that a few, uh, a few months apart, the same two wrestlers had had an absolutely fantastic match and like one of the worst matches ever on, uh, on pay-per-view. So it's not the, yeah, this isn't like way better or worse than the uh, SummerSlam match. It is just uh, quite different in the way. I mean, Alundra Blaze is doing these um, deaf looking, uh, desperate looking forearms from like a kneeling position about like two or three minutes in she's like already like really under the cosh physically she does get in before they get to the first sort of hair grabs and power moves and things like that blaze does actually get in like a flurry of kicks so like the the way that they work this is very clearly so you know they have that kind of circling each other and then they have their lock up you get some strikes in and then the ragdolling happens but they also do things like they run the ropes they do irish whips um at one point my personal favorite moment of this whole match is when blaze is selling on the floor and bull stops and sort of just sort of, um like plays with her hair just straightens her hair a bit because it's coming a bit loose the crowd goes wild for it because at this point bull nakano gives no fucks anymore and he's just the consummate showman so she's just like what we're just gonna just gonna check myself yeah she, she does it again later in the match because he got such a pop it's just so 
<laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's really good. But Blade gets to do a Joshi Bridge out of a pin. She gets to do sling blades and stuff that you actually you don't see in the WWF matches. It, it just opens her up in terms of what she what she can do and you know what she feels confident with doing as well because the audience is ready for it. It, I think... She does a standing moonsault as well in uh, in this match, which again you don't. I, well, I I was uh, blown away by that because having uh, watched five uh, London Blaze Born Akane matches in a row that took place in America before that, that, I was certainly not uh, not expecting it. Absolutely, and actually, I think using Bull's size against her becomes one of the running themes, as it so often does in your kind of your, your David and Goliath type matches. But Bull actually. I was looking at it as we went through all these different matches, and overall, she misses more leg drops than she hits. Um, but I mean, she obviously lands one that looks absolutely devastating at the at the finish of this match. But it's a, I really like the way that this match plays with. It's probably not expected that anybody in this audience will have followed the feud that's already happening in WWF. No, I wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't have thought so, or or well, necessarily are... remember Medusa from uh, nineteen eighty nine. Depending no, on if true. they're you know true. casual fans or you know, people who were uh, really enjoyed the stuff they were doing in nineteen eighty five, or surprised. even like hardcores from LLPW, FMW, etc. Yeah, but they're playing with the formula. They're playing yeah. with the formula, and it's almost like these people might not notice, but we will. Is the theme that I think I've uh, starts to emerge because yeah. at this point, these people have probably worked with each other more than they have worked any other wrestlers in their entire careers. Very probably, yeah. This match carries on from the, the and they keep having this match you know for a period of months in fact we'll you know we'll probably talk about this a bit later on but between 1994 and 1996 they pretty much exclusively wrestled each other <laughs> like yeah it's uh it's 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 certainly extremely interesting i mean alundra blaze really doesn't get a huge amount to do in this match at all like there's some of the stuff she does looks good and some of it doesn't like there's kind of a uh the standing moonsault looks nice but but before that, there's like quite a weak-looking spin kick from the uh, from the second rope. It's it's certainly not a uh, a showcase for her in any uh, in any sense. It's it's it kind of reminds me of when Minami Toyota worked that match in in Eve, and she was wrestling Blue Nikita, who was basically uh, a, a functioned as a crash test dummy for her to do her moves on. It's <laughs> yeah. that kind of dynamic. Blue Nikita was having a great time being Minami Toyota's crash test. Oh yeah, she cut this very emotional promo after uh, about how she like really admired Minami Toyota and Toyota clearly didn't have a fucking clue what she was saying. <laughs> it's, it's big sandman sugar in the guy away in her chair. Uh, yeah, isn't it? But, um... so what's your highlight of this match, David? I, do you know something, right? You mentioned about the hair, the ragdoll and the hair pulls and stuff like that, right? I, I, I feel that I need to clarify for the listeners that maybe are familiar with wrestling hair pulls of, you know, the the Don Marie Francine ECW bullshit. Yeah. This isn't that. This isn't a cat fight. She fucking launches her. Yeah, like with, 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 with gay abandon across the ring, and it's it's done. It's almost like more of a hip toss. But yeah, she, like... she basically turns her into like a break dancer. She like full on spins around for three sixty. Like proper. Lundy Blazer spin a Rooney at Big Wrestling Universe. <laughs> incredible scenes i i really liked them just purely because of that but um I, she honestly is the best um hair puller uh, in wrestling i know that sounds like a real bank-handed compliment but she <laughs> does it so well like she she does as well i don't think the closest anyone's ever came to using the hair as effective as a, a um a weapon 
and the match is probably the one where Charlotte got her extensions ripped out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only time anyone's came close. Sasha gets a handful of extensions, and then she just like shit, and then just starts whacking her with the extensions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so vicious that you don't even really think about it as a catfight-type spot, because, like, there's... It's what you'd do if you were in a fight. Yeah, it's like there's clearly intention to cause serious harm. Like, I'm throwing you across the ring. The hair is simply the means by which I'm doing so. And um, the the one thing it gets it, it backs up my theory that I have an absolute theory that you could put Bill Nakano in these awful like WWF two thousand diva matches, and and with these awful stipulations, and she still have a good match. Like, <laughs> yeah, get her in the pudding bowl. She'd be fucking great. It'd be four stars minimum. I guarantee it. It'd be great. I don't care. She's fighting, but like I. Honestly, like I think she was so uh, she, she was really really good in this. There was one part where she they fucked up a move and it looked hideous. What, what oh I can't remember what it was now, but they um I think it was maybe I, oh no there was one where she kicked her in the shin I believe. Yeah, that was the that was the kick from the second move I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and it looked it like it, it looked like a bad move. It looked like it really fucking hurt as well, hitting her in the shin as well. I quite like that, even though it was a botch. It still looked painful. But yeah. um, the the leg drop to the end, it was deadly, absolutely oh, deadly. Fuck. It was. It was. My uh, God. She hit this kind of. I don't, she's got a extremely extremely good and possibly mistranslated move called Bull's Poseidon, which is essentially <laughs> a. Um, it's the setup similar to David's favorite move of all time, the modified water wheel drop. Uh, but it's like a sort of uh, it's a back to belly pile driver. And, it's uh, her face when she does it. It's more like it's, it's very similar to like the Alabama slam. That, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Only she just drops you on your head. I don't know if Alunda Blaze didn't fancy taking the head bump, but it turned into <laughs> some sort of weird sit-out flapjack that I've literally never seen Bill Nakano do before or since. But you know something, right? Bill Nakano's face when she does it, she looks so happy for herself. Like, <laughs> yeah. I fucking dropped her on her head, and it was amazing. It, it's um, like, it's like, like when like the stern teacher that you hate at school decides they're going to be fun because it's Christmas, and you just think this is weird and unnerving please go back to what i'm used to it's like i had a history teacher right who was like at the very least in her like mid to late 60s if not older she was very old and one lesson she'd done the charleston right (laughs) right and this became a thing like every class for two years miss can you do the charleston miss can you do the charleston and like she was good at it and then like at christmas she would like you know, like saving it for the big shows, you know, a main event in any arena, our 70-odd-year-old history teacher doing the Charleston from no apparent reason. That, that is um, incredible. We had, a, we had an English teacher who dressed all in black, like, the entire time, and then one, <laughs> one day she came to work in, like, this green dress, and everyone was like, what, what the fuck? We and, are at DEFCON 1. And then, and then, like, we were all kind of rinsing her about it, and then she never did it again, and I feel really bad. <laughs> hey, do you know something, right? This match, we, we mentioned it earlier, um, the Team Total Divas versus Team Bad and Blonde went 11 minutes 25, and this went 9 minutes. And I'm glad. It was great. I loved it. I didn't need this to be 25 minutes. It, it was a good great. palate cleanser. I'm not saying it's like the greatest match I've ever seen. I argue it might not even be the best match these two these two had. But um, it's it's certainly, if, if it's in the slot where you're like, okay, we need to give them something which is not going to be especially onerous between the semifinals and the final of the VTOP tournament and something which is, you know, uh, it, it kind of functioned quite similar 
to the Chickas and the Guy Reggie Bennett match that we talked yes. about in episode three, where yeah. you've, you've got a big name from the eighties against uh, an American, um, albeit um, you, you know a, a London Blazer, someone people might have known from a few years before, but it is essentially a means of getting someone on the card, um, and like this was the perfect place for it. So this was my my logic when I was thinking about this. Actually, none of the none of the major belts, the the belts that people actually got worked up about, were on the line at Big Egg. So the red belt is not being defended. The tag belts are not being defended. The white belts not being defended. The only belts that were on the line was were this, the AJW Junior title, which we haven't got to yet, and the uh, UWA tag titles that we talked about in episode five, and and that is it. Yes. So I so my logic with this is. None of the belts that actually matter to Japan are on the line at Big Egg. So you may as well give everyone like the high profile win that makes everybody go away feeling good and gives everybody that, you know, hashtag WrestleMania moment. But actually... From... <laughs> hashtag Big Egg moment. Tell me about it, right? So this is... I I said this when we were watching the matches. I said, you know, a couple of years ago when Tanahashi won the, won the IWGP Heavyweight Championship in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom, and yep. it was not, you know, he is not now that which he was, but it still just felt right because he's, you know, as they come, he's one of the greatest, and just Tanahashi having a belt feels right. This I think that's what they've done here. Because yeah. It's just like... Spawn Nakano, of course she's got to have a title. Yeah. Of course she's coming over to win and look good and everyone's just going to love having her around. I, 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 I compared it to the um, the match from uh, New Japan World Quest um, uh, back in uh, back in 2019 where Tanahashi beat Zack Sabre Jr. for the Rev Pro title and then like dropped it back after a week. But it was I felt they, on that show they did a very good job of doing an authentic-seeming New Japan show and like Tanahashi winning a belt is very much quintessentially New Japan, even though kind of, I don't know, the Rev Pro title in New Japan kind of as important or, or not important as the WWF women's title might have been <laughs> to AJW back then. But yeah, it's very much like Borna Kano goes over. There's a nice feel-good moment. Uh, this was re- really one of her last high-profile matches in uh, in AJW, really. So we can talk we can talk about what she did af- uh, after in a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was just, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, this is by no means the best match on the card, but it's very much function for what it was. It's a, a fun time. Alundra Blaze really didn't have very much to do. It was the Bornicano show, but like... Alundra Blaze goes to rest at the Tokyo Dome. Take it. Yeah, you know what I mean? right, exactly. Like... And actually, I don't, th- I don't think she disgraces herself in any way, shape or form. I think she gets her, I think she gets her moments and there are definitely, there are moves that she gets to do and spots she gets to do that she wouldn't have done, that she doesn't do in any of the WWF matches. Yeah. I think for someone like her who had spent that time in Japan earlier on in her career working with some of the absolute best in the business and had had to work at that level throughout that kind of really critical time in the industry this must have been really liberating for her to actually come back to an environment where she could work to what she was capable of rather than kind of what what the fed kind of needed her to do so she does get those those moments and yes it's not a it's not the most back and forth match, but she gets her moments of offense and she gets the she gets the entrance and the stage and all of the things that WWF wasn't going to give her, even if you know they had turned the women's division into something into something important. You know, it was well, Sarah, that... Summer Sam, they gave her a screen with Katy Can on it. What more do you want? <laughs> that is true. It wasn't even a screen, it was just some light projected on a sheet. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't, hadn't even progressed having things like the Titan Tron uh, back then. I, I enjoyed the uh, the aftermath to this, in which um, uh, Kyoko Inoue 
gives uh, Borna Kano a uh, the sort of the the bad luck Fale Prince Devitt uh, sort of like uh, piggyback. Kyoko anyway must have been pretty banged up from what she was doing on the show earlier. So I was like, I'll just lift Borna Kano on my shoulders. It's it's fine. And then Bull gets given a uh, sort of very ornate looking plaque. Which is like, oh, yeah, thank you very much. And then a big check, which she is fucking delighted with. <laughs> really funny just how made up she is about getting the big check. She's I'm going to Ravina. Paint some Keenan on me. <laughs> all, about, all about getting paid. I, I do think, actually, in some ways, I think Blaze is the more interesting person to follow after the match because then she goes and she does her post match interview in the. Uh, quote unquote losers in quotes. Yeah, we noticed this. They always get in the. They don't get the proper like press match interview. They get in like a little side room and just have to talk about how sad they are. It's like the press conference every time somebody loses at Wimbledon. Yeah, they have to go into and explain themselves. Um, but she she actually does a really good post match interview, and Blaze doesn't really get the credit she deserves as a promo, really. But she sets up the rematch on home soil. But she talks about you know with ten years under her belt, she's got to deal with this now. She is a ten year veteran. Um, Japan has moved on since she was last there and that she was actually really surprised by the level that she's found there and that Bull Nakano has the benefit of having been in America and studied Blaze and being able to work that into her arsenal, whereas Blaze hasn't had the luxury of watching Bull in Japan to bring that, to, to you know, kind of bring that experience to bear. So... I would say I, I would say on her first promo though I didn't like it because it sounded like she was like advertising a cream for frosh and I was like and that's why Bill Nakano may the best woman win and, and yeah. then and then oh, it yeah. just says at the bottom like uh, so eighty percent of eighty five people said well, I mean also bear in mind that that pre-match interview was not very good because she kept contradicting herself because she kept saying <laughs> I'm feeling confident I don't think there'll be any problem at all and then saying. May the best woman win. Good luck. All of it. It's like, look, are you going to win or aren't you? Like, you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, Bull Nakano is one of the best. I don't know who's going to win, but may the best woman win. Like, make up your mind. Are you winning, son? <laughs> but like, well, I think, I think, in 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 fairness to her, uh, the the guy the guy who was translating kind of mangled the phraseology of the question. Certainly didn't seem as fluent in English as the uh, the French translator they were using for uh, Doris Blind and Anagomi was. Um, so yeah, kind of uh, kind of a uh, sort of tale of two uh, interviews. Uh, one of them good, one of them uh, one of them less so. Um, but yeah, like uh, just uh, just a just a really interesting match. Um, maybe more so in terms of its context than the actual match itself, as good as it was, because um, this was not the last meeting that they ever had. You know, Borna Kano is now the WWF Women's Champion, so she's going back to uh, to America and uh, go back to America. She does, like I say, these two wrestled each other on WWF house shows uh, up until March 1995, and uh, Bull actually defended the WWF Women's Title against Kyoko Inoue, a show called Wrestling Queendom, in March 1995, which is a fantastic match and i would really really recommend that and then um they had a, a, another match on raw oh didn't they just right so my i consider the volnacana alundra blaze feud which lasted over a period of august 1994 to sort of the summer of 1996 i consider this to roughly follow a bell curve <laughs> big egg is... don't say it say don't don't say what you're gonna say I'm, just because you've mentioned the bell curve, it's not going to be anything problematic. No, I, I, I'm not here for the slander of loser has their motorbike smashed. <laughs> we haven't even got to that yet. Oh, well, 
we're getting there and we are going to have this conversation. Big Egg is the peak of the bell curve and it is frigging well downhill from here. I'm sorry, David. You know, you do you do you want to talk about this? Do we need to have like some mediation? Now, let's do Let's talk about the raw match first. And then we can get onto the battle of the bikes. Oh. <laughs> That's what you're here for, aren't I mean, you? Honestly, I'm quite happy to skip onto the battle of the bikes because this is the raw on April the 3rd, 1995, answers the question, what would happen if Jim Cornette was on commentary? Uh, <laughs> Jim Cornette and his famously progressive attitudes towards women and Japanese people and Japanese women. I mean, so at this point, you can already sense that WWF is kind of just giving up on women because these matches also get shorter and shorter. It's Jim Cornette's fucking there. <laughs> <laughs> It just oh, it gets it gets worse. I really I really like the uh, I will say for the raw match like um um there's an argument made that it's it's got things about it that the summer sun match hasn't uh, they go it's shorter but they go harder there's some really fucking like gnarly Becky bumpy. Lynch nominated it as like one of her favorite women's matches of all time because it, it was great. on a like, network um, playlist the commentary's bad but like the match is good Bonacano um take she tries a suicide dive and and uh, Lunge Blaze moves and Ball just goes to flat on the floor. Like, imagine taking that bump on a fucking 1995 Raw. Like, if you look at what else is on, on this show, the main event in terms of matches is a 90-second Men on a Mission squash. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking bad. I love, there's a, there's a really cool spot in this match. And this match only goes like, is it five minutes? It's like six, six and a half, something minutes. like that. It's not very so long. In that time, Volnikano takes a dive to the floor. Alondra Blaze moves. Alondra Blaze does a bridging German suplex on the floor and then oh. tries to get a, and tries to bridge and go for a pin, but it's not false count anywhere. So what are you doing that for? There's a brawl outside the ring. There's a missed moonsault. Eventually, the, the, eventually the finish is the bridging German for, for, for Blaze yeah. to... Uh, for, for Bliss to win it back, but it's there's an element of them definitely having levelled up a bit because they've yeah. wrestled each other so much. They've increased the intensity. They're coming you, up with new you things might, all the time. You might say there's an escalation in terms of what they what they were doing in a kind of King's Roadish sense, but I, I will point out to you that like I I believe this was the the first televised match since uh, SummerSlam 1994. So the rest of the feud basically did not exist as far as the WWF uh, crowd would consider it very much like, remember Lundra Blaze? Remember the WWF Women's Championship? Oh, I remember. Packed in pog form. <laughs> yeah. So it was that. And uh, and then um, uh, basically uh, they... But actually after the... the uh, it was the debut of Bertha Faye after this match. Um, uh, Ronda Singh, uh, very much in her Monster Ripper form. If, uh, so they went in a different fucking direction with uh, that. We don't really have time to go into uh, into that, but um... well, there's a story behind this. So the idea oh, yeah. of a, the idea of a sort of the the spring and summer of 1995 was um, there was a period when so Bertha Faye was going to feud with Alundra, and then Blaze was going to take some time off. During which time, um, Bertha Faye and Bulnacano were going to feud for a while. Um, the idea was that Blaze wanted to take, to take time off um, for a nose job and a boob job. Um, there are... So there were story. I've seen various interpretations of this going around, including that maybe Bertha Faye was a little bit was a little bit salty, but also like by the time you see um, Alundra Blaze a bit later on, there's obviously... She's definitely had the surgery as, uh, as well, because she does start to look different from this point. Um, so whether there was time off happening or not, I mean... By 1995, we start to have problems with Bull Nakano. Uh, 
this the the plan for the Bertha Faye and Bull Meccano um, feud is next because Bull Meccano gets caught with cocaine and gets sacked from the WWF. <laughs> now the absolute brass neck of Bull Meccano <laughs> getting sacked for being caught with coke when you think about all the people they had tolerated over the previous ten fucking years. But she Bull Bo- Bo- Meccano has been caught at the Mexican border with a case of Icopo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say, right, I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs. Um, I have friends who do drugs, but I, I don't do them. I've never had the, the inclination to do it. However, this story perfectly solidifies my assertion that Bill Nicano is absolutely the best person in AEW <laughs> to go out with on a night out. Because she'd be <laughs> fucking grand. She, she'd know how to have a good time. Irrespective of whether I am partaking in the Colombian nose powder or not, It'd be, a, it'd be a good night out. At the same time, you'd get back to hers, and whether you, if you had the munchies or whether it was just, you know, you needed breakfast the next morning or whatever, as someone who eventually released her own cookbook, she would be able to feed you as well. She'd sort you right out. Probably another reason why she should get involved in the pudding bowl batches, right? Because she'd, <laughs> she'd at least make sure it was less I'd be, I'd be one fucking salacious pudding that they're, <laughs> they're like getting pile driven into. The, 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 the less, the, 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 basically, the next thing that happened was that, um, uh, in keeping with the template of, uh, of Alundra Blaze feuds with a much larger woman who has made their name in Japan, they then bought in Arja Kong and had the second ever Survivor Series uh, women's match featuring uh, Bertha Faye and Alundra Blaze and then uh, six um, AJW talents. Um, the match gets about 10 minutes. It's it's uh, very short. Linus Asker jobs in about 90 seconds, which is just absolute criminal stuff. Mm-hmm. And the idea was they were going to build towards um, Arja Kong versus Alundra Blaze, but then Arja Kong broke Chaparita Asari's nose on an episode of uh, Raw and Vince decided to shit-can the feud. And then Alundra Blaze ended up... Um, uh, you, you might have heard of this before, uh, taking the women's title to WCW and dropping it in a bin. And before Medusa ended up going to uh, WCW, they had uh, brought in some Joshi wrestlers for an exhibition match at World War Three ninety-five, in which, uh, in, 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 interestingly enough, uh, talent from more than one company. So they had uh, Bull Nakano and Akira Hokuto on one side and Mayu Miyazaki and Kuti Suzuki on the other and i mean the it's uh, it's a great match but the the absolute funniest thing about that is um because this is when like hulk hogan was uh, i think this is this would be pre-nwo so this is very much hulk yes. hogan like gasping on the dying embers of hulkamania and getting increasingly salty reactions from the crowd who were mostly into rick flair and the horsemen this was in um, the world war three where the wcw title was vacant and oh yeah, had, and they, they 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 and they did a fuck finish for a sixteen man battle royal. But like the the funniest thing about <laughs> this is uh, Borna Carno doing a better version of Hulk Hogan's finishing move from the top rope. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Well, I I remember I because I before the network I once bought a paper bag of WCW DVDs <laughs> off of a UKFF of every WCW pay per view uh, from the Nitro onwards, and uh, I I re- distinctly remember. World War Three ninety five, that tag match being the one where I was like, "Fucking hell, this is just above and beyond everything, <laughs> like everything." Because this is before the cruiserweights had started as well, and it was just a case of, it, honestly, for me, it was like the Ray Malenko of its of its time, you know, in the sense that that match happened, and you were like, "They have something here. This match is amazing. 
it's only like ten minutes, but it is, it is honestly blows away everything because this was the this was the pay per view that they headlined with having a giant in every ring, I believe. Oh, and it was like the Yeti God, and yeah. other people, and like the yeah, the David it pronounced it correctly. It's pronounced Yeti. Yeti. Um, <laughs> but this match was the one that really stuck out because I believe the rest of it was pretty garbage. This was at the height of um, Hulk Hogan. And his pals just running riot and Hacksaw Jim Duggan oh, winning the US title yeah. and stuff like that. It's not even good and for a World War Three match. It's really not. But this that that tag match is unreal and it's so so good. And uh, if you ever if you ever have 10, 15 minutes spare, I would highly recommend everybody watch it because it's so good. Absolutely. And Mike Tene, uh, as Mike Tene uh, is to do on every WCW pay per view until the end of time, is the only one who knows a single fucking clue about any wrestling whatsoever. And he's like. This is actually like a big deal. These two co- companies don't really ever uh, collaborate much apart from Big Egg and stuff. And like he's he's pretty like absolutely spaffing himself at the prospect of, of these guys um, tangling up and stuff. And he gives it like, a proper like you're like fucking hell. This is a big match. And, you, um, might, you might regard this as a kind of soft launch for the division that uh, they ended up. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> doing doing is a strong word for what they actually uh, yeah, uh, did with women's uh, women's wrestling. So yes, yeah, Sarah. How, so how did uh, how was Alundra Blaze um, lured from WWF to WCW? Well, I think the thing you have to remember first is that she was really a WCW alumna. So when she'd gone from there to the Fed in the first place, I mean, prior to that you think about a lot of the people that she was close with early on in her career, they're all in WCW as well. Hmm. So at this point, bearing in mind that she went to the AWA in 1986, where she feuded with Sensational Sherry, she managed Kurt Hennig, she lost the title there to Wendy Richter. So these are all people who had been, that was Wendy Richter having just come out of the WWF. Um, she joined DDP's stable, the Diamond Exchange. In 1988, by the way, she was the first woman ever to become the PWI Rookie of the Year, which I think ah. is, a, which is pretty damn impressive. Um, but she'd then been in WCW. She was Rick Rude's valet. She was in the Dangerous Alliance. Um, so she already had a lot of contacts there, and that's what you have to kind of bear in mind with this. Um, as... The situation with women's wrestling in WWF in throughout 1995 kind of got worse and worse. You know, Vince being horrified at the violence of women that Chaparita Asari's nose had gotten broken. You know, that that kind of thing that was happening all over the place. And probably the fact that, you know, he'd have to send Paul McCarno home for a bit of the old Colombian marching. <laughs> the old beak. <laughs> yeah, that all of those things basically were, were cooling him off women's wrestling. And she's there like, well, hi, that's what I'm here for. Um there's also a lot of issues in in the Fed at the time around around pay. Um, she is not getting paid anything close to what most of the most of the men are, and the issues with pay don't go away when she goes to WCW because there's a and even in the last couple of years there's been a bit of a Twitter spat between Eric Bischoff and Medusa about how she was underpaid compared to a lot of the others, and certainly compared to all of the men. Um, I mean, if you look at like how much WCW. Rosters are getting paid. I mean, there is like various like lists of like pay, uh, pay oh, scale for mad. them all. It's insane. It's like Lanny Poffo got like half a million to never wrestle a match over like three years. The like Dalton yeah. Bogard of wrestling. But along the <laughs> being paid a fraction of what the boys were doing, and she was, and frankly, she could work 
springs around basically all of them. Um, she was always much better than I think. He, even in her best matches, she doesn't get to show sort of the full extent of what she's capable of. Um, but so Eric Bischoff is in WCW and he's sort of trying to lure her across. And one of the ideas behind that is, well, look, we're starting to use more of these women. Come over to us and we'll build a women's division around you and we'll bring in some talent from Japan to help give you more interesting matchups and give you all of these things to do. Where have you heard all of this before? Um, essentially, you're going to have the same problems in the long run. Um, but they actually, rather than using AJW, um, WCW is starting to use gayer talent. So it's all of the pizza. Chigasa obviously is leading this. By this point, Akira Hokuto is turning up in gayer, for example. You have a lot of the a lot of people who'd maybe jumped ship from AJW turning up in gayer, and it's a really it's a really strong promotion in those first few years. So. Yeah, if you look at the uh, the uh, well, they they gave um, Alundra Blaze. Uh, well, they didn't they didn't actually have a win. Well, they didn't even have a fucking win the belt when they uh, mm. uh, brought brought her in for this uh, women's division. But if you look at the title tournament that they had, um, there were uh, only two of the wrestlers in out of the eight were actually American, and um, the rest were from Gaia. And uh, two of them were actually Kira Hokuto. She worked under a mask. Um, in the, in the that. first round as well as as herself, you had Chickas Nagai playing her uh, face painted heel uh, gimmick called Zero, and uh, a young maker Satamura as well. And she would actually wrestle on Nitro uh, later, as they decided uh, absolutely pointlessly to introduce a women's cruiserweight title. Um, so There's, there are suggestions that actually the cruiserweight title would have been almost an international belt that could have been defended more exclusively by the Gaia. And, and, and indeed that. was. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, put it this way: the that the tournament for the the heavyweight title ended at Stark in '96, which is when they had the J Crown matches with Ultimo Dragon and Rey Mysterio. So that that uh, would really tie up in the sense international flavor. But uh, be- before Starcade uh, 1996, uh, I don't want to talk about Starcade. I want to talk about Hog Wild. Oh boy! Oh boy! The Battle of the Bikes, George. <laughs> so what, we, what, what we have to say here is that until such time as a lot of those agreements were in place with who they were going to start bringing in from Gaia, it seems like they just kind of wanted someone reliable they could bring in for Blaze to work with after she'd done the whole, well, I came over here with the WWF title and put it in a bin on live TV. I'd better do something with this opportunity. So they went back to Old Faithful, who's been working with Alondra Blaze for the last year and a half, and Bull Meccano comes in. So they start having this feud, and they will now follow a 10-minute interlude where David Forrest will talk about the Hogwild. So just right. to, I was going to say, like, David, explain what Hogwild is for the uninitiated, because it's absolutely insane. Now, I always say I absolutely adore Hogwild, or Roadwild as it was known. Now, the easiest way to do it is you put 300,000 white supremacists in an area, uh, a thing called a motorcycle rally. So it's like a giant motorcycle rally. Imagine like the London Motor Show, but um, well, fact they they have them here as well. They have motorcycles. So like, where biker gangs and stuff like that, they go and they, they show off their bikes and stuff like that. And there's like it's two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people that go, and they decide what we'll do is we'll have a pay per view at this, and um, we won't charge anyone because obviously you've got two hundred odd thousand people there. You, you wouldn't want to charge them, do you? Um, it's, it's literally just because Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff loved motorbikes and hanging out with bikers. That's literally it. That I is honestly the entire about reason. making a profit at any point. Absolutely not. But I love this. This in Bash at the Beach, there's a Bash at the Beach as well, where they just have. It's the sort of 
it's the the spectacle and the grandeur of it in the sense that you you can't buy that sort of aura in the sense that this is like legitimately like six figure crowd maybe it must be bigger than collision in korea it might well be actually now now bearing in mind i don't know how many of the those people at the rally were watching the wrestling at i know everybody at the ducati if i can stand was turning up to watch you know yeah Randy it might Sabu be very much like uh, you know uh, progress doing download or uh, NXT yeah doing download. So progress doing download is exactly the it is exactly the equivalent that i came up with in my head it's just i assume that for the most part like the the download the, the download crowd, we can generally assume, are a bit less fash than your average Hogwild audience. Yes, I mean, th- this show included uh, the Steiner Brothers versus Harlem Heat. And you can imagine uh, the oh, reaction no. that uh, Harlem Heat <laughs> black men got at a biker rally in uh, Sturgis, a place, incidentally, where Fozzie recently played and uh, has now been linked to several super spreader events of uh, COVID-19. So, uh, I mean, if, if you ever needed to know the lay of the land in terms of Sturgis... Um, that is it right there. You know, Chris Jericho takes Fozzie and is such a big hit, he causes like several outspreads <laughs> of the coronavirus because everyone in that place just fucking loves Fozzie. So, uh, so David, what is the Battle of the Bikes? So basically, it's, it's motorbikes, isn't it? It's a motorbike show. So you need to have some sort of tenuous motorbike themed match. So what they did is that they had... Uh, Medusa also loves motorbikes. She came out, as we said, a big egg on a oh, motorbike yeah, yeah. on a Harley Davidson. And what they did is that they had Bill Nakano come out on a Honda Superbike. Well, you say Bill Nakano came She did not come out on the bike because it's fa- it's fairly clear <laughs> that Bill Nakano does not have the slightest interest in motorbikes and does not know how to ride one because Sunny Ono does the, um, the riding of the bike for. Ironically enough, Manami Toyota her AJW colleague, is legitimately a huge fan of motorbikes. <laughs> they could easily have got her in for this. Uh, yeah, you, you must have been sitting there. Like, if you were, if you're fucking Minami Toyota, probably sitting there, and you go, oh, Bill, what are you up to the weekend? Oh, I'm away, um, I'm, I'm wrestling for WCW. Oh, you might like, actually, it's a giant Harley-Davidson rally of 200,000 people. And you're like, what? And he says, oh, yeah, I don't give a fuck about bikes, though, so I don't really no, know what to do. No, what? Like the, 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 so the loser get sorry, the winner gets to smash up the loser's bike. It's very much like, you know, like in an episode of a sitcom where they'll mention, like, I, I don't know, say a hypothetical episode of Friends, like uh, Ross has a, a prized pot plant that he absolutely adores and has had for years and has never been mentioned prior to this in, like, seven seasons of the show. And it is clearly just been brought into this episode so it can get smashed up and Ross can throw a fit about it. That is literally... They did this in Top Gear. Jeremy Clarkson had his house demolished by Hammond and May because he lost a bet. Um, it's very much in the same ilk. Yeah, it's very much um, like like Bonacano's prized motorbike, which she absolutely loves. This is definitely an established thing and not something we shat out of our ass three days ago. I mean, I, I just think it's I just think it's worth combining the uh, the, the white supremacy <laughs> and the invented need for a motorbike. Um, Sonny Erna drives it in, and it's a it's a Honda with the flag of Imperial Japan. Yes, a, a the the yes a very very much a. Uh, a yikes thing if you see anyone with uh, the th- with uh, this flag so critical support for medusa smashing it up i guess <laughs> i mean you're, you're kind of torn where you're either supporting imperial japan yeah or, um, or, or, the or american flag, supremacy and, yeah the american flag <laughs> another fascist symbol yeah the, well well i mean i don't see um, any white supremacist leaders bringing fissile a cup so you know <laughs> unlike the emperor <laughs> your your football team's lucky charm 
and his glorious new red sheep. I mean, Medusa rides in, by the way, on a massive pink Harley Davidson wearing stars and stripes lycra. Oh, yeah. To make this any clearer that we've got, you know, here's our perfect all-American feminine yeah. biker chick versus here's the woman who's, you know, got the big, who's got the big hair and the angry face. Even she might be wearing a leather jacket, but ooh, doesn't she look angry? Yeah. You know, with the Imperial Japan. Yeah, also, also she's fat as well. <laughs> so there's all these things sort of it's like going... Personally, I don't think these people need that amount of prodding to do some xenophobia. I think they're perfectly capable of it without the symbolism. <laughs> I, I don't think people... I don't think bikers at Sturg- Sturgis Rally should be throwing stones in glass houses with people having weight issues. But... <laughs> I mean... Let's be fair here, guys. This is the world's shittest Kid Rock video. (laughs) It is not surprising that everybody everybody in it looks like they're attending a Kid Rock video. I mean, they're putting Sturgis back on the map. I said, hey, hey. (laughs) Fuck me. This is like, this is also like, it's a five minute match with a a screwy finish. Oh, the finish. My God, the finish. Sarah, could you describe what happened? To, what is the finish to this? I haven't got a pissing clue. <laughs> so, I, I, By this point, I was in a pit of despair. I'll be honest so with I looked you. This up. <laughs> I, I know what the finish is, but I want, I want, George, what do you think it is? Right, I think, so there's a German suplex, right? And then uh, Bonacana does the German suplex to Alundra Blaze, and she, Alundra Blaze gets her shoulder up at two, but then the ref counts three anyway. Is that it? Pretty much, but for some reason, Sonny Ono thinks... Yeah, so basically, is that... And then Sonny Ono thinks, oh, well, Bull Nakano's won, and starts to try and fuck up the Harley-Davidson. And then Medusa just smashes it up, and, like, nobody knows what's going on. The, the commentators don't really know what's going on either, and they're just like, I, I, I guess Bill Nakano's big suicide. How will she get to Epcot with Sonny Ono for a <laughs> VIP pass tickets? <laughs> the the I will say actually this is not the biggest sort of what the fuck moment of uh of this uh, of this show and you know it's not even the uh, the incredibly vociferous heel reaction for face Harlem Heat uh, but like it is the fact that WCW thought it was a good idea on this show uh, and I believe this was immediately after the Battle of the Bikes. Um, so bear in mind, look, these are bikers. They've barely got, you, you know, the pe- people who go to the Sturgis Motorbike Rally have barely got two working synapses between them and are maybe <laughs> not um, hardcore wrestling fans and maybe are not here for uh, the technical aspect of it. They're here to see, like, Hulk Hogan and, like, they- they'll like the giant because he's big. But basically, they're, like, uh, you know, ca- casuals, if indeed they're wrestling fans at all. Um, WCW, in light of this, decided to book uh, Chris Bomar versus Dean Malenko and have it go to eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do that? I, I don't. I, I think this is. It's not this one. It's ninety-eight, but they have a real track record of just really doing. No, no, it's, it's, it's this one. I, I checked. It's Hogwarts. No, no, no. In, in ninety-eight, oh. they do. They do another stupid thing where they have two Titantron. Uh, jumps in the same paper. Oh, for fuck. For sake, like, this the worst reading of the room since like, like Michael Richards' stand-up career came to a crashing halt. It's so bad. But this, um, like, this is wrestling. This is proper. Like, <laughs> we, uh, we know how you know how Pat Reed loves the um, the Memphis. You know, Bill Dundee's Cadillac is on the line. <laughs> Bill Levels, and, you Bill know, Dundee's and he will not be allowed into Bridlington if um, he loses this match. That, that's what this is. It's just, I, I love this. I, this is proper like wrestling you can watch your dad with because mm-hmm. your dad likes motorbikes 
and he's like, oh, fuck, someone's going to get a motorbike smashed up. <laughs> this is wrestling's, this is wrestling's untrammeled id. It's got everything about it. It's, it's got, it's got vehicular destruction, a stupid finish, the match isn't as long as it is, and the crowd's full of Nazis. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the commentators are misogynist. Oh, yes, we, and uh, there's even more misogynist commentary uh, packed into an even shorter match at uh, Clash of the Champions 33 later this year, which would mark the end of this feud. I mean, I think you can tell a lot about how this feud is being sort of booked and developed in the sense that these matches after after big egg the matches get gradually shorter right so they 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 all get gradually shorter you can also see like so medusa's look changes she gets far more sexualized especially once she gets into wcw and later on there are going to be points where she's essentially turning up as like randy savage's sort of bride or whatever oh yeah she she was in the company until like 2000 yeah, well, that's the crazy well, thing. She trained, she trained people as well, and she was eventually the the, the woman that became their first cruiserweight champ, their, their first female cruiserweight champion. Have Have you ever watched Medusa's cruiserweight title run? I I have not. I'm not aware of any of that. Are you aware of Oklahoma, Sarah? Not the state, or the musical? I, I am. So in my research for all of this, I know <laughs> oh, that God. I know that Medusa was feuding with some guy called Oklahoma. Do you know over the cruiserweight championship? Do you know who Oklahoma was? No. Right. Okay. Oklahoma. What two thousand dollar UCW was shit? You're telling, me, <laughs> you're, you're telling me that I'm going to believe that? Right. No. 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 This will blow your mind. Right. So Oklahoma is um, Ed Ferrara. Have you ever heard of the name Ed Ferrara? No. So Vince okay. Russo's writing partner. Yes, oh, so he's not, not an actual wrestler. You're not off to a good story. start here. No, no. Imagine being like the less widely known person in the team with <laughs> this <Vince> Russo. <laughs> he, he's shot to fame because they... Um, now, when I say this sentence, you're going to groan. And okay. I, I don't blame you. When JR had his latest bout of Bell's palsy... It's a good start. Um, it's a very good start. Vince Russo thought it'd be really funny if they did a parody of JR um, called Oklahoma and um, he would just shout by God, by God, by God Oklahoma and just like scream and he would commentate during the matches um, and he wore a cowboy hat and he managed Dan Severn uh, no sorry, Steve Williams he managed Steve Williams he managed Steve Williams and now, get, get, try and wrap your head around this. I it's really hard to get to the end of this paragraph without me letting out a groan, but that one was completely involuntary. Oklahoma was involved in a match at Starcade 99, which saw um, his client, Dr. Death Steve Williams, fight Vampiro with Oklahoma locked in a shark cage thanks to The Misfits, as in the punk band The wait, Misfits. Wait, actual Misfits? Actual misfits. Oh, yeah. and Steve Williams better. fought Jedi only in a cage match. And lost. <laughs> and lost on Nitro. But there is a match at Starcade 1999 where the misfits lock Oklahoma in a steel cage and they go bleh at him, making vampire faces at him uh, throughout the whole match because they're scary goths. And then um, the um, Vampiro wins the match against Steve Williams and gets five minutes of Oklahoma and the Misfits just beat the shit out of him. This actually happened. And then we parlayed on from that right, golden box what? office feud. You know what? If that had happened in Lucha Underground, it would probably have been good. <laughs> I, I can confidently say it right now. It did not happen in Lucha Underground. Therefore, ergo, 
<laughs> it's just not good. Oh, fuck. I, I, just, I knew from the start of that when you said they thought it would, when JR had his bout of Bell's palsy, they thought it would be funny. Yeah. And at that point, I knew this was going, this is just going to go off. And yeah. Away. And then, and then, and then Oklahoma uh, feuded with Medusa for the Cruiserweight title. And the entire basis of the feud was Medusa can't win the Cruiserweight title. I'm a man. A woman can't beat a man. A woman has a small brain and should be in the kitchen. They'd already done this in WWF with China and Jeff Jarrett. Didn't Oklahoma win as well? Well, she eventually dropped the belt to him, so yeah. Good, so, so the misogynist <laughs> was right. Excellent. <laughs> Another victory for Jordan Peterson and his cronies. Uh, Compared to this, the two and a half minute match at Clash of the Champions, which happened five days after the destruction at Hogwild, and which is essentially the, sh- the same match, but shorter and with no bikes. And ends with a really shitty roll-up after some malfunction at the junction in which Sonny accidentally hits Paul Nakana. Maybe seems like a lighter sentence. Got, got what a depressing end to the episode. It was just like, oh yeah, here's, here's a Lundra Blaze wrestling at, uh, at Big Egg in the uh, in the Tokyo Dome. Now here's like four years of abject misery of a Lundra Blaze ah. WCW career. You, you see that though? Because there's a further twist to the tale. Oh, oh God. God. Did you know that this is a multi-sport wrestling match here at Big Egg? I did not. So, Bill Nakano, golf ace, as we know. We don't question her scores. We don't want to look at them because, you know, she is the greatest of all time. She clearly won them all. It's very much Mr. Burns and Smithers of his reptile eggs. Took her a couple of years to qualify, but she did. She did. She does, exactly, exactly. Um, do you know what Medusa done after wrestling? She is a fully qualified world champion monster truck driver with her own monster truck named Medusa. Yes, she is. That's, that's, that's so pretty great. Monster trucks versus golf at the Tokyo Dome. Does it get any better than that? So actually, this because we, we we kind of didn't do this uh, uh, at this point in the in the run of episodes for any reason, but actually uh, following on from all the shoot stuff it's actually it's actually quite good. Like, it's a different style match of, uh, of another kind. Um, so really that's kind of uh, the end of Formal working agreements between uh, anyone, yeah, ever. between any Joshi <laughs> and Western companies, and yeah. it really wasn't until they signed uh, Asuka that you really got uh, Japanese talent, uh, certainly Japanese female talent, coming back into uh, mainstream American wrestling. Obviously, like uh, Shimmer brought in like various Joshi wrestlers, yeah. but um, you know, you, you didn't have anything like this again. Uh, WCW did actually briefly try to get a women's division together again in 1999 um but they didn't use any japanese talent they just tried to use what was homegrown and it still died within the year because they clearly weren't investing in them and booking it and yeah. actually treating it with, with any seriousness but then again it's also 1999 wcw so that was probably too much to hurt yeah about. this was like the, the you're very close to the era of the nitro girls yeah. and stuff like that so it's kind of a uh the Nitro girls being trained to wrestle was actually part of their attempt to get this division. Right, down. okay. They started giving them training. Right, okay. Um, that, that's, that's probably your problem. <laughs> yeah. But what I what I kind of find frustrating about this is that in a lot of ways, the work, on the women's side, the working agreements between Japanese companies and the, the kind of the big American federations are part of a failure of imagination in terms of how they use and develop and book homegrown talent. It's the fact that they couldn't find and they didn't trust in the quality of 
the female performers that they actually already had. And that was why they actually started looking abroad. So, and that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of the kind of the weirder matches that we can, we then get to see later on. We're just like, what do you mean you got to see Akira Hokuto in WCW? That's a, that, that's a gigantic mindfuck. But there's constantly this thread of, okay, well, we don't really have anybody other than Alundra Blaze, so who are we going to bring in from, who are we going to bring in from Japan to make her look good and give her stuff to do? And it must have been super frustrating for her as well, because she kept being promised new things in new promotions, and then nobody committed to it, and it all ended up dying a death. It's just it's just a litany of missed opportunities, really, exactly. and false starts. And, like, the the... the... The stuff that I mean, really, the Alundra Blaze Bornicano feud is pretty much the only bright spot in uh, in all of in all of this. And even even then, it wasn't all good. Like the stuff they did, like between SummerSlam '94 and you you have SummerSlam '94, the matches they had on Raw, Big Egg. Um, that's pretty much it, to be honest. Like yeah. it's uh, it's it, it, they're not really booked all that all, all that well, even when they're actually in a in a sort of a position of strength, and that's. Ultimately, I just want to I just want to leave you with the question of how different would professional wrestling be, both in America and in Japan, if Moolah hadn't fucked over the Glamour Girls and the Jumping Bomb Angels in 1988? Because if that had led to the money match at WrestleMania, the establishment of a women's tag team division in which you had actual competitive matches between re- between really talented women, the way that Japanese wrestling developed with one eye on what was happening internationally with its competition there might have actually looked a bit different as well. And this is kind of one of those sliding door moments, I think, where you think yeah. about what might have happened in the industry as a whole if Moolah hadn't been a fucking dickhead. It's, yeah, it's hard to imagine that you would have had as minimal foreign involvement on this show as you did with uh, uh, basically it just being Reggie Bennett, Alundra Blaze and various amateur wrestlers. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting thing to think about for sure. It's uh, it kind of feels like we've uh, used the match as a sort of jumping off point to talk about uh, uh, Joshi and its uh, relationship with American wrestling at the time. But I think I think it's a good thing to do, you know, as we're trying to situate Big Egg Wrestling Universe within the context of uh, Japanese women's wrestling. Uh, you know, it, mm. it 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 seems like to uh, talk about what was going on with uh, Japan and America, or rather, what wasn't going on I'm, at the I'm... time, is quite instructive. And crucially, I think it's it's about the significance of Bolnacana, and I'm not just saying that because I'm me. Like I'm saying that because we're talking about the idea of you know bringing back all of the greats that could, all the greats that can still go. And Bolnacana is is still working in AJW, and she worked in AJW for a bit longer after this mm. as well. But also bear in mind that Bolnacana is a few months off of turning 27 by the time we get to Big Egg, so she's kind of she's aging out but at this point they've relaxed the rules for some of the big stars because they need to keep them around Hmm. so she's in some ways she's kind of teetering but she has been at the peak for a very long time and she's not necessarily what she used to be but she is the returning hero at this point she has traveled around the world she's coming back for her victory lap and seeing her here as kind of She's the icing on the cake. She's here with relatively no stakes. She's not here to be competitive. She's not here to... She's actually not here to tread on the toes of the current champion, Aja Kong, or any of the major stars that are going to be around for a bit longer in the company. She's certainly not here to detract from Akira Hokuto's final matches, which is what's actually being billed. But she's such an influential figure that it's like, well, we can't not have her on the show. Yeah. And that's that's really important too. And I... 
I appreciate that I will just take any opportunity to sort of rant about Vaughn Meccano because I do think that she is she's one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time but she's also she's so important in terms of what she represents to so many people and how influential she's been on so many other performers you know both in in all the major kind of wrestling mm. territories actually and I wish that we'd been able to see more of her in WWF because when I was a kid watching wrestling I wish I'd had her as a role model because girls watching in the late 90s and the early 2000s got Trish Stratus and Lita who Sable. obviously I love and they got but yeah they got the Sable so you got you got people like Luna Vachon being you know hideously underused basically because she was bigger and didn't necessarily fit the template of what they thought that the women should still be she certainly wasn't a sable you know we people sort of my age did grow up with that idea of this is what women in wrestling are because we weren't looking any further beyond wwf and for a lot of people like our perceptions of wrestling and our perceptions of ourselves as as women would actually be quite different if we'd had role models like Paul Meccano right from the start. And I just wish that we'd been able to see more of her rather than me having to wait until I was in my 20s to kind of discover her, really. Imagine Bill Meccano versus Sable. What a match. <laughs> Nasty, brutish and short. Get it in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, as far as uh, as far as uh, uh, the whole Alunga Blaze Paul Meccano Dudley wrestling goes, that is uh, basically uh, episode nine. Uh, episode ten, we're going to uh, go back uh, towards the start of the show, and we are going to talk about the uh, another title match, which is the uh, for the AJW Junior Championship. So what we're going to do Aww, is <laughs> so basically we're going to talk about um, the concept of a junior division, as in uh, wrestlers early in their careers, as opposed to junior heavyweights, and you know the idea of like particularly young women in wrestling. Um, so you know, I, it, was Alan Hansen right when he said you'll never win anything with kids? Let's uh, let's find out. But uh, before before then, um, I guess the last thing to do is plugs. So Sarah, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So um, first of all, everybody write to your MPs and demand that Paul Nakano gets put in the Hall of Fame. Second of all, um, Women Love Wrestling is an anthology of essays written by and about women who love wrestling um, and women who wrestle and and generally people who are supporters of the concept of women kicking each other in the face. Um, I'm a big fan of this. I wrote an essay for this about um, the idea of women having always been a, an audience of wrestling fans um, and male-dominated companies not knowing how to cater to us. Um, there's also people far more interesting than me. So there's writers like Scarlett Harris. There's interviews with wrestling promoters. Um, people who people who have really interesting and diverse perspectives and you should buy it anyway because the proceeds go to rain in the us and they go to women's aid in the uk it's a really worthy cause it's available as an it's an, available via amazon the links to that will be in our show notes so which is another thing that i've been doing since we started releasing these episodes um obviously your episode drops into soundcloud slash wherever you may get your podcast from um but also, in the episode description, you'll find a link to um, a page on I maintain the double foot stomp is silly.com, um, where I'm actually providing links to where you can watch these matches, what the timestamps are to make sure you're getting the right stuff. Um, 
obscure references and things that we mention. What are we talking about? All, all of those. What are we ever talking about? Well, exactly. <laughs> all of those. The question on everyone's lips. Yeah. So if you haven't already seen that, we're publishing show notes for every episode. Um, check those out on I maintain the double foot stomp is silly dot com. Are you um, going to do show notes about Oklahoma? Uh, um, yeah, all right, all right. Let, please don't make me think about it until the last possible moment. I don't want to spend too much energy on this. Um, so the other thing that I've started doing as well is, and it started as a thing to do in the show notes, is um, I'm compiling a massive list because I like lists. But um, this is send me your links for things like interviews, match recommendations, you know, translations of Twitter accounts, anything like that. Anything that you think is important for people who might want to know more about Joshi. So this this kind of, I'm calling it the Joshi link exchange because it's a place where people exchange links about Joshi and I have no creativity <laughs> in me whatsoever. Um, but in the show notes, you will find a link to the Google form where you can submit them, as well as a link to the document where you can see what's actually out there. Um, I am curating them via form because I know what wrestling fans are like and I want to have an element of quality control so that people don't just spam it with like means of cancelled people and things like that because we, we all know you that that subtweeting me right here. <laughs> I wasn't subtweeting you, I was subtweeting all Tori... sorts of people, David. Toriano is Joshi. That's that's a fact. Toriano is a is a regular contributor to the men's Joshi, and I think we can appreciate that. Um, he's not really what this is here for. Um, so yeah, those are my main plugs. So um, show notes, Joshi Link Exchange, Women Love Wrestling. Um, consume all of those things, please. And I won't get a penny from any of them. So I promise you that this is really quite selfless. Next batch of plugs. Yep, David, go for it. Um, you can get me on Instagram at Viano14, as in the Viano dynasty of Luchadors, but it's the 14 fun because there's loads of them. Um, so at Viano fourteen XIV, we I, I run a podcast about Partick Festival. Yeah, we talk about the games that are, uh, have been games that are coming up. We kind of like spice it up. We're getting into sort of uh, draw lose or draw. It's available on various pa- uh, podcast platforms. Um, and again, it's a good fun listen. So I definitely ask you to check that out. Nice. Um, yeah, that's pretty much about it. Um, give some money to the Donkey Sanctuary. Big fan uh, of Donkey Sanctuary. I, I love the Donkey Sanctuary. I've always said if I ever had to do a charity run or anything, it's going to be for the Donkey Sanctuary because I don't get enough money. Um, but yeah, um, just, yeah. And uh, so uh, I've got some uh, uh, shit to plug and then we can uh, we can all, all have dinner because I'm very, very hungry. Um, so uh, you can follow us at Puro Podcast on Twitter and follow Sarah at Sarah Parkin one also on Twitter. Um, and I have got a uh, novel out, which is called The Rise and Fall of Ricard Ozan. Now, uh, we remarked during this episode that about the paucity of American wrestlers on uh, Big Egg and how Japan vs. America wasn't really a big part of the show. That very much did not used to be the case. So Ricard Ozan was the, uh, the first big wrestling star in Japan. He became the biggest sports star in the country as well as the biggest TV star. And his, uh, his uh, entertainment empire was very much built around... Um, sort of reliving and uh, I, I guess relitigating the trauma of the Second World War in Japan's favour. So there were quite a lot of Japan versus America matches in which Ricard Ozan would uh, beat uh, American wrestlers, uh, big names you might have heard of, such as Luthers, Classy Freddy Blassie and The Destroyer. Um, so it's about my protagonist getting involved in wrestling and finding sort of its, its murky underbelly, the scales falling from his eyes and 
uh, finding out some things he maybe wished he hadn't found out about his childhood hero. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot of things to do with wrestling's place in uh, Japanese society. So it's called The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan. You can buy that on uh, Amazon for uh, Kindle uh, for £2.49 or the equivalent in your local currency and uh, a print-on-demand paperback for £14.99 or the equivalent in your local currency. And uh, so yeah, that's the shit I've got to plug. Um, I uh, also wrote a uh, an essay in a book called The 100 Greatest Literary Detectives, which is extremely funny because I am really not an expert on detective fiction and don't really read much of it. Uh, but if you want to uh, read my thoughts on the Jasper Ford character Thursday Next, then you can uh, you can buy that. It's a, it's a very fun book. If you're into detective fiction, uh, I would very much recommend checking it out. Um, as Sarah said, you can also uh, go to imaintainthedoublefootstompysilly.com, not just for the show notes, but also for various other fun articles that we have uh, published on various aspects of wrestling. So we will see you again for episode 10, where we talk about the AJW Junior Championship. Until then, everybody, stay safe and wear a mask.